Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Bernadine Sung Megason with Compass Real Estate, serving buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. Learn more at homesbybernadine.com. Today from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, Ivanka Trump says there's a special place in hell for Roy Moore, the man her father just endorsed. What would his election say about America's progress on sexual misconduct? We'll ask you. Then we'll ask MIT economist John Gruber, what's up with the tax bill? We'll discuss winners, losers, and likely outcome. Then at noon, medical ethicist Art Kaplan on CBS purchase of Aetna and what it will mean for health care. And you can't afford a real shink? Well, have we got a robot for you. <laughs> we'll open the lines and ask you about the robots Jim just mentioned. What are they? They're robot shrinks. Could you go for one or not? You better believe it. <laughs> Corby Cummer, our food man, asks if becoming a chef could be bad for your health. Gun control activist John Rosenthal sends lawmakers graphic images of gun violence victims. He joins us to explain. Then Harvard Business School historian Nancy Kane on decades and decades of tax reform. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. It is Tuesday. We are broadcasting live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? I'm well. How are well, you? Well, good. Was that a surprise, the question? <laughs> you look shocked that I was... <laughs> so, I wasn't wow. sure how I was doing, Jim. I'm I had to fine. think about it. I had to think about it for a couple of minutes. So Donald Trump and Steve Bannon's plan was to blow up the Republican Party. As you know, is the candidacy of Roy Moore their first successful detonation. Three weeks ago, here's a little bit of history, the RNC cut off more from its coffers after the number of sexual assault accusations multiplied. Nothing has changed since then. In fact, more women have come forward and more evidence has emerged. What has changed, however, is that Trump has given more a resounding endorsement, even though his daughter, remember, said that there was a place in hell for people like Roy Moore. Well, Trump's action prompted the RNC to open its purse strings again, emboldening other Republican leaders to show their support. Mitt Romney, though, is not among them. The presidential candidate, whose worst defense against women was to put them in binders, if you recall, <laughs> tweeted, and good for Romney, quote, Roy Moore in the U.S. Senate would be a stain on the GOP and the nation. Lee Korfman and other victims are courageous heroes. No vote, no majority is worth losing our honor our integrity. For people like Romney, it's a dark day for the GOP. I would argue it's broader than the GOP. Is it a dark day for you? What does it say about the progress that people like Marjorie and I on some upbeat moments believe we are making on the sexual misconduct front when there is this flood of endorsements, <clears throat> maybe from Alabama voters as well, for more? Or is this all an oversimplification of something that has been eroding politics long before more? Does this go back to, say, Bill Clinton to an era where sexual misconduct in politics became normalized. 877-301-8970. I know he's one of your favorite politicians, mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, so can I play for you a little? I this is him. McConnell two weeks ago telling reporters more should step down, and then McConnell on Sunday telling ABCs this week that uh, we should let the, quote, the people in Alabama decide. Here's McConnell then and now. Are you calling for him to step down from that Senate race? I did. I think he should step aside. Do you believe these allegations to be true? I believe the women, yes. I think uh, we're going to let the people of Alabama decide a week from Tuesday who they want to send to the Senate, and then we'll address uh, the matter appropriately. Do you believe that Judge Moore should be in the Senate? I I'm going to let the people of Alabama make the call. Where the election's been going on a long time. There's been a lot of discussion about it. They're going to make the decision a week from Tuesday. 
You know, in all fairness, Marjorie, I know this upsets you. Yep. You can't argue, since you believe in diversity, there's mm-hmm. got to be a place for child molesters in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by the way, how do you think I mentioned, how do you think Ivanka Trump feels? To her credit, early on, and most of us, including me, naively thought that she was speaking as a surrogate for her father a couple of weeks ago when she said that line about there's a place in hell for people right. like Roy Moore. How do you think she feels that not only is her father not on board, but it gave this full-throated endorsement to a guy who is credibly charged as being a child molester. Well, her father is accused by teenage beauty contest pageants of spying on them well, that's true too. when they were undressed in that's their true. dressing room. And not to mention the other adult woman who charged him with grabbing their whatevers and shoving them against the walls and everything else. So she's the daughter of a, a credibly accused um, I guess, child peeper, you could call him, and, and woman harasser. So uh, uh, let's assume, uh, uh, well, so far we only have the RNC throwing money back. We have Mitch McConnell doing a flip. We have the, uh, what did uh, Roy Moore say that Donald Trump said to him on the phone? Go, Roy, go, or something <laughs> yeah. like that. So we're, what are we, <clears throat> seven days away for an election? You are, uh, and I'm, I th- it makes me really happy to be with you in this context, really positive about the Me Too movement, what's happened since Harvey right. Weinstein. Roy Moore's elected, admittedly from Alabama, next Tuesday. What's your position uh, on Wednesday about where we are? I think that this is a very bad time for the uh, Republicans on this. I mean, you, know, you can certainly point out the Democrats were terrible with Bill Clinton, and they were. Nancy Pelosi was terrible about John Connors, and she was, Conyers. although John Connors is now uh, is resigned. He's stepping down. Uh, she was w- wishy-washy on that. Uh, Al Franken is still there. The Democrats haven't been perfect. But this is very embarrassing, I think, for the, uh, for the Republicans because – this guy, as we all know, was banned from a shopping mall for trolling for teenagers years ago. It's very hard to say that these charges aren't true. And you have this new woman that just came out, you know, and, and, and said that here she has her the card he gave her in his handwriting when she graduated from high school, wishing her well. Uh, other women have... Uh, she's not claiming that he sexually molested her. No, she's what not. She she, said, they, they were dating. She was silent mm-hmm. until her name was mentioned. She was fine with this until... He and called she's a her Republican, a liar. Called her a liar, and she right. said, I'm not going to stand for this. Exactly. She goes up to her attic and finds all these notes he's and called, yearbook signings. He's called all these women liars, and Trump has called all these women liars, too. So uh, it's sort of a sad state of affairs. But our, our old colleague from WT TKK, Michael uh, Graham had a great point pointing out that Alabama is an extremely conservative place. And it reminds me of the old line about that Barney Frank used to have about uh, 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 pro-life uh, uh, people. His idea One was, of the best lines you know, it, their view is that, and I'm paraphrasing, but that life begins at conception and ends, ends at, at birth. birth. So it seems that the people in Alabama are so concerned about uh, uh, abortion that what happens to people after they're born is less of a concern to them. And that he's running against, uh, in Michael's uh, analysis that uh, Doug Jones is too far, uh, too progressive of a Democrat, and that's the reason that they can't bear to vote for him because he doesn't want to build the wall. Well, Michael Graham, and this is a piece on CBS News website yep. that Graham wrote. Graham makes a third point that is not the most original, but it's an important one: is everything is context. And while most people would not would not suggest that Al Franken on his worst day is in the same class mm-hmm. as Roy Moore, when the Democrats were so wishy-washy early on about Conyers, as you said, until that woman came out last week, and that Al Franken is almost like yesterday's news, right. he, who was talked about his problems. In fact, I saw a tweet from him last night about the uh, the uh, all the what's it called Bears Mountain or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. He's talking about protecting 
the environment almost as if nothing happened. I'm back at work. The point that Graham makes, which I think is a good one, is, you know, it isn't like the Democrats are pure enough for them to be going on the assault on Roy Moore, even though I would argue that molesting a child is exponentially worse than anything that's being suggested about Frank. And maybe not Conyers, but who knows. Our number is 877-301-8970. So what's your reaction? The RNC is back, the Republican National Committee is back on board with its money for Roy Moore. Donald Trump is a full-throated Roy Moore supporter and leader of the Republicans in the Senate who used to think that uh, Roy Moore should pull out three weeks ago, now thinks the people of Alabama should decide. You know, this guy is going to be a big embarrassment if he does win and he does get to, agree to the Senate you. because he's up there talking about, uh, uh, you know, he thinks that uh, gay people, he's talking about them as sodomites and all this gross language and he's uh, absolutely backwards on a lot of progressive issues and he's got some very shady financial dealings, money that he made and did not uh, report in his taxes. So he's shady on a million different fronts in addition to his problems uh, with, with women. And when you have these women, uh, uh, you know, producing <laughs> evidence of letters he wrote to them and it's his handwriting, it's really, I, I, I can't believe that pe- people, Fake you know, news. I guess the whole thing is, it's sort of, we're sort of reached, I don't know if this is a moral low point in our politics, but it's pretty close because when you combine what's happening on, on, on tax reform, what's happening to the environment, and what's happening with the president and Roy Moore, it seems like all the peace that you know n- doesn't matter the, the morality of it anymore. Well, how about harken when you say anymore? Harken back to what I said in the be- end of my introduction here, and then we'll get to your calls at eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. We've discussed this ad nauseum, but with the exception of you and a few others, uh, we're people, Democrats, not co- liberals covering for Bill Clinton yes. in exactly the same way yes, but that I d- Republicans yes. are covering for Roy Moore? Well, uh, right. But I think that the, the 90s was a different time because, of course, we all know that Anita Hill got up there and told the truth, in my estimation, about what happened with Clarence Thomas. And there were other women uh, that never got to testify mm-hmm. uh, that were going to say the same things about Clarence Thomas. So it wasn't just Anita Hill. And she was called a little nutty and a little slutty. And Clarence Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court. That was in 1991, 1992. Bill Clinton's were, uh, we knew about Jennifer Flowers beforehand. The rest of his stuff came came out during the 90s. We were much worse. Jennifer Flowers is not a crime. No, she was not. He was having an affair. We all remember that. She got on the 60 Minutes thing when Hillary Clinton said she was going to, she was not Tammy Wynette standing by her man, but uh, she was going to stand by her husband in the Jennifer Flowers situation. Then later, most of America learned about these other awful things about harassment. We need a project who said that Bill Clinton had actually raped her. And I think she was very credible when she said that. We were... It was a different time for sex harassment, and I think, as I've said a million times, feminists really disgrace themselves by standing by him. But we are 20 years later now, or 30 years later, whatever we are, 25 years later, and I think we've we've come a long way. I don't think this is going to end up well um, for um, the Republicans. This you mean if he thing. ends up winning in no, particular? No, I don't think so, because he's such a creepy guy in a million other ways uh, that he's really kind of disgraceful. Well, you know, uh, the last thing I'll say about this is while you can say, well, it's Alabama, Donald Trump's 59 percent approval in Alabama, the fact that you don't hear many Republicans, including Susan Collins, who used to revere from Maine, saying saying (laughs) that he should be expelled should he be elected. You don't hear much of that talk anymore. So I would argue that Republican senators from other states are just as culpable 
on this if the people yeah. of Alabama I mean, where, say yes. Where are the other Republican women? Where's Nikki Haley down at the UN? Does she, does she, is she in favor of uh, child molesters getting into the United States Senate? I, I mean, I, I, and why can't, and Laura Trump, by the way, who's the uh, wife of Eric Trump, is doing robocalls for uh, her. Roy Moore? For, Rome, I for president in I Alabama, yes. And um, Ivanka Trump has, I guess, decided to shut up. I, I think those of us who thought she was going to be, be a great champion for women obviously have been sorely disappointed. 877-301-8970. Let's start with John and Gardner. You're first on Boston Public Radio, live from the Boston Public Library. Hey there, John. Good morning, kids. How are you all? Great. Um, Jim, you talked about some naivete on your pad yesterday. I would argue it was dopiness. But that, Thank you. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I have some naivete and then another thought. Um, well, actually, doesn't this line, um, we want the Alabamians to, to decide for themselves now this new party line, is that not reminiscent of the party line when I'm not accusing Obama of being, uh, a, I'm not a birther, but we'll let people decide for their own. How many people went around? That was the party line then, right? Just don't answer the question and say we're going to leave it to these. Well, but Trump, just, but Donald well, Trump is answering the question. Mitch McConnell may not be, but Trump is all in. Well, I mean, he is a big time yeah. Roy Moore supporter, and Roy Moore is a big birther too. Yeah, Charles Barkley called him a white supremacist. He did. What a what a surprise he's in on that, huh? <laughs> Here's my naive. T- by the way. Sometimes one has repetitive duties in life, and they're a pain in the neck, and sometimes they're a pleasure. Marjorie, yeah. another fine, fine column it was. in yesterday's Boston Oh, thank was. you. And, and the point of which was, which is another reason why I'm encouraged, is that I think women are, and, and fathers too, but mostly mothers are raising their children much differently now. The idea that you have to, um, you know, it, 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 the, that you do not owe physical closeness to, to anybody uh, because they're nice to you or because they, they buy you a gift, that, that you own your own body. And that's not something that... This generation, as opposed to the prior yes. one, where it was almost the price of admission. Well, you the had classic a- example is the creepy uncle right. that would come over at Christmas or come over at Thanksgiving and you know he hugged you a little bit too close and you knew it was really creepy and kind of awful and your mother would say... Or your father would say, hey, you know, mm. he's only here for a couple of minutes. Don't hurt his feelings. It's only once a year. I think that we have moved beyond that I and said so you, don't, you don't have to do that anymore. And it's a lesson le- learned early by young women about their bodies and powerful men. You have another point, John, or are you done? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm, right. g- I'm gathering, by the way, you may have drawn a little bit from your personal life on that, Marjorie, but you don't have to answer that. My other thought is she on my night. Hey, yeah. Marjorie, do you think there's any chance that there's younger women and hopefully men and then even some not-so-young women in Alabama that aren't telling their husband or boyfriend or their mother or father how they feel, but that they feel as creeped out as some of us up here do. And that I, th- I have a still a, a little bit of hope that Jones is going to carry the day. I think it's the exact opposite. I think some people are too embarrassed to say that they're supporting a child molester. And if I had a bet, if the polls are off, they, I hope you're right. They're not off in your direction. They're off in the right. other direction that he's going to win bigger. And by the way, I'm sure you know, John, one poll yesterday had him up five or six points. This is Roy I Moore. One had him down three, so we shall see. John, thank you for the call, as always. 877-301-8970. Yeah, and, to, and as you pointed out, Alabama is a very conservative state. 
I mean, he's um, in Alabama. The president has a 96 percent approval rating among Republicans. I'm taking this from 59 overall, 59 overall and 96 percent among uh, Republicans. 71 percent of Republicans in that same poll. I think it's the same poll. Don't believe any of the allegations against Roy Moore, by the way. 71 percent. Yeah, that's the one that's really that's the one that really gets me. You know, you mentioned a minute ago that a critical issue in this race is uh, Roy Moore is to put it mildly, passionately uh, pro-life and uh, uh, Doug Jones is pro-choice in a state that's overwhelmingly pro-life. There was a great exchange this morning. Roy Moore spokeswoman Janet Porter was on with Poppy Harlow on CNN this morning. She's pregnant, Poppy Harlow. Mentions Harlow's baby twice while defending Moore against uh, Jones. Just listen to this. Thank you for joining us. And let me get right to it. So Thank you. It's great to be with you. The and by the way, congratulations on your, your unborn child. Uh, that's, the, that's the reason why I came down as a volunteer to speak for Judge mm. Roy Moore, because he'll stand for the rights of babies like yours in the womb, uh, where his opponent will uh, support killing them up until the moment of birth. Janet, thank you for being with us, and I appreciate the congratulations on our son on the way. If you care about child abuse, you should be talking about the fact that Judge, that Judge Roy Moore stands for protection, not only of our Second Amendment rights so we can protect ourselves against predators, for the rights of, of babies like your eight-month baby that you're carrying now. Doug mm -hmm. Jones says you can take the life of that baby, and we should pay for Let's it. Leave Let's leave my child out of this. Let's leave my child out of this. Good for Poppy Harlow. You know, uh, abortion is legal up to six months. <laughs> it's well, not. he doesn't believe in the Constitution, <laughs> as evidenced by the fact he was removed twice and, as chief justice. And we should point out that almost nobody is getting abortions up to six months. The vast majority of abortions are formed in the first 12 weeks. And if it weren't, this is what kills me about the anti-abortion uh, people, that the inability of women to get abortions early because of restrictions that are all across the country means they ultimately do get the abortions. But we're talking about uh, not a six-week abortion or an eight-week abortion. We're talking about a 10, 12, or 14-week abortion. Nobody's getting aborting eight-month-old babies. That's just ridiculous. By the way, we're just told by our colleagues in the control room, remember we were discussing with Charlie Senate yesterday the whole issue of Trump uh, 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 moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Charlie thought it wouldn't happen. He convinced me. Uh, I don't know what the news source is, but Trump has apparently told the uh, CNN, thank you, the head of the Palestinian Authority, that the U.S. plans to move its embassy to uh, Jerusalem. Let's go to Tim in Rhode Island. You are next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Tim. Hi, Jan and Marjorie. Thank you for taking the call. I appreciate sure, it. Sure, uh, make I'll make it quick. Uh, first, Marjorie, I want to salute you for a wonderful, important column yesterday. Oh, uh, thank you. Wonderfully written, brave of you to share. And for men who think and were raised to respect women, uh, I believe that you caused them to think, too. And I think it's marvelous. Uh, oh, thank you. Secondly, well, it, it, was, it was very brave of you and uh, truly an important column. Thank you for writing it. Uh, secondly, uh, Roy Moore, I believe, uh, Trump, Trump endorsing him, as, as awful as it is, what this goes down to for me, and I, I follow politics for most of my life, as both of you do and have, uh, it's just about power. Uh, all this is about is gaining power, holding power, it's several lobbyists, and Republicans have got no leg to stand on as far as being deficit hawks with a $1.4 trillion deficit or $1.4 trillion. And in spending, which is going to happen over the next ten years, so it's just down to the, it's just a matter of Americans, enough Americans, 
being able to see their dripping hypocrisy. Well, you know, I have to say, for whatever it's worth, Tim, just to make it slightly bipartisan, I would argue until John Conyers gave a huge break to the Democratic leaders in the House of Representatives, they deserve a capital H on their chest as well for hypocrisy. If you're zero tolerance, you're zero tolerance for your own as well as the opposition's. And their position, particularly Nancy Pelosi's early position until she flipped on uh, Conyers, to me, is unconscionable. Uh, but thank you very much uh, for your call, Tim. 877-301-8970. Boy, they got a break today. If Assuming that Conyers, that little sound we heard a few minutes ago from Henry Santoro, is actually, or NPR, wherever it was, uh, is uh, stepping down, retiring today, uh, the Pelosi's of the world got a big break. Hey, I just want to answer Tom and other people that are saying this is a partisan thing for me. It absolutely isn't Tom, etc. cetera. Uh, I, it's not just Moore's accusers, I believe. I believe Al Franken's. I believe uh, Conyers. And I it's believe ridiculous. Bill Clinton's way back when. And please go look at the Boston Herald if you don't believe me and see what I wrote about it. But, Tom, nice try. Anyway, we are talking about the RNC throwing its support behind Roy Moore, asking you if if this is a new low for the GOP, that conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about fact that uh, the RNC, Republican National Committee, flipped, uh, Mitch McConnell flipped, and most importantly, the President of the United States flipped, now supporting Roy Moore in a full-throat way. Uh, what does this mean, and w- what does it mean for the progress that most of us think we've made in the last month or two since the uh, accusations were outed about Harvey uh, Weinstein? I mean, this election is seven days away. I think that, you know, if... And by the way, that, that emailer aggravated me, too, and I try to stay measured. You can't be listening to the show and say this is a partisan attack on Roy Moore. On day one, we said Conyers had to go. We've been saying the same thing about Bill Clinton forever. Uh, I mean, really. And I mean, and by the way, that's like the last refuge of scoundrels. What are you, defending Roy Moore by accusing us of partisanship? The guy is a credibly accused child molester who the President of the United States is endorsing for a seat in the United States Senate. I mean, really. Uh, Joan Bonacchi's got a good piece in the Globe saying, when is enough of Bill Clinton enough? And her point is he's getting paid for these big speeches, and he's still a darling of the Democrats, and he's writing op-ed pieces, and maybe it's time that he gave a... uh, Shut up. Well, who said to us, either on the radio or on Greater Boston, to me last week, we will never see Bill Clinton invited to do another... uh, Oh, it was Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd told us on the radio, I don't think you're ever going to see Bill Clinton invited to another candidate rally or a a Democratic candidate seeking his endorsement for election. That has changed, too. But in the meantime, the women who you think, and I tend to agree with you, credibly accused him, had to live through decades of him being the most popular Democratic figure, if not the most popular politician in America. So hopefully things have changed. Let's go to Tim in Amesbury. Hi, Tim. Hey. Good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. So, listen, I'll, I'm going to skip right over the, the sexual harassment issue and go right straight to the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I think that an individual would have to be deaf, dumb, blind, or incredibly ill-informed to not recognize the Republican Party and just about everybody in it 
as totally morally bankrupt. So hypocritical, whatever else you want to add to that, we have a large group of people, like I said, there may be a couple of, of exceptions, who are completely out of it. They are. They have no moral foundation whatsoever. I mean, they, they're just they're in the process of executing a $1.5 million theft from the Treasury of the United States. Trillion, one and a half trillion dollars, these, yeah. These, these thieves in suits, real thieves, the thieves in suits down in New York City have more morals than these guys in their Armani suits in the halls. <laughs> Tim, are you just as critical of the Democrats for letting Conyers decide when he felt it was appropriate? I am with you, Jim, I am with you 100%. Good. I lost my respect for Bill Clinton the day I found out that he had oral sex with somebody in the White House. I said, I thought the guy was smart, and I... I thought he was the smartest politician in America, and I lost every bit of respect for him, and I held my nose when I voted for his wife. Tim, thank yeah. you for the call. We well, appreciate you know, it. That's one of the things you think would be interesting in the history books of how much— uh, we always talked about how Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were the two most disliked people ever to run for office, and how much of the Hillary Clinton uh, animus was, was driven by— the whole history and the whole baggage of their marriage, their troubles, Bill Clinton's um, awful shenanigans and all that kind of stuff. And how the night that, remember the debate when uh, Trump brought in the women that accused Bill Clinton, oh, Paula yes, Jones and Juanita Broderick and stuff like that. The, yep. And, and you know, in a way it's analogous to how Ted Kennedy basically had to have a bag over his head at the Anita Hill hearings because he just come from this, Bacchanalia down in Palm, Palm Springs, Beach, where Palm he was Beach. out drinking with his son and, and his, uh, his nephew. William Can you refresh Kennedy my Smith. recollection? I, I, I wasn't there. I know you were. He was silent until the end, was he not? He, he was silent. He sat there and said nothing until Clarence Thomas called the hearings a high-tech high tech lynching. Right. And then Kennedy gave his very impassioned uh, attack on Thomas, saying, don't you dare basically call this a high-tech lynching. Um, but... Uh, he was silenced because his his nephew was tried for uh, rape in Palm Beach and was acquitted, uh, even though, once again, and this is so often the case, there were several other women who had the exact same experience Just as like William Clarence Kennedy Thomas Smith, thing. and they weren't allowed, they to weren't allowed to testify. Now, in a trial, you can say that's too prejudicial, mm-hmm. um, but it wouldn't have been... The Anita Hill hearing was not a formal trial. I those women could have testified. And I think Joe Biden and all the members of that committee have a lot to answer for for why they didn't let those women testify. Let's squeeze a couple more in. 877-301-8970. We're talking about the change, I guess you could say. Donald Trump, full endorsement of uh, Roy Moore, RNC sending its money down after saying no more money three weeks ago, and Mitch McConnell doing a total flip-flop. Stephen Taunton, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling in. Hey. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. Why never any mention of Bob Menendez from New Jersey, the Democrat child a molester? Well, these are the underage... Oh, I can tell you why. You're talking about him allegedly cavorting with underage hookers, right? That's right. I, last I read yeah. of it, and you may have read something more recent, uh, prosecutors didn't move on that. That was a couple of years ago, though, yeah. charges were. And I don't, whether, I mean, he was charged and he just had his trial on that corruption he, issue, but I don't think there were ever right. charges pressed on the prostitutes. Were they or were they? Yes, that was part of it. And he's under I don't think that was part of it. by the Senate. Steve, but he's under investigation by the Senate. And he's never mentioned in the litany of uh, Kanye's and uh, the, the senator from uh, 
Minnesota or oh, Frank, more. He's never mentioned. Well, Steve, I have you to know, in all fairness, I don't think your facts are right. If they are, we're going to check them right now. He should absolutely be included in the list, but I don't think you're, I don't think you have the latest on that. But again, if you are right, we'll correct ourselves in a couple of minutes and we will include him I've on the list. I've forgotten about the underage yeah. hookers. That was a couple of years ago, but yeah. Steve says the I Senate's even, looking at it still. Yeah, I don't know that and to be the case. We should have remembered that, but I didn't remember that. Steve, thanks for the uh, call. Meanwhile, Linda says the GOP now stands for the grand old predators. <laughs> Well, you know, really, you know, the thing you said before, if I was a, uh, I think Mitt Romney said it most perfectly. You know, I love Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney has, 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 has been kind of the conscience of the Republican Party. Not that it's done them any good because he gave that impassioned speech about Donald Trump and, and, and was ridiculed. Then he did. So why was he willing to be a secretary of state? Well, you know, I'd like to think it was partly the reason General McMaster's is serving the president of the Maybe United right. States. That Maybe you're right. When the president calls you and says you want to become Maybe secretary right. of state, Mitt Romney would have probably been an excellent secretary of state. We might not be in the situation we're in now That's with looking at nuclear war in North Korea if you had Mitt Romney there. Um, so he may have just swallowed his pride and said, I'm going to go serve my country. But I love him for the fact that he's standing up. And Orrin Hatch, who was a disgrace in the Nita Hill hearings, is now disgracing himself on uh, Roy Moore. Well, but uh, Orrin Hatch is only 84, so there's no reason he should think about not running for re-election. back in the day for Orrin Hatch, it was anything goes. You know, it's like that guy that says that in the 70s, who was the insurance guy that said in the 70s they would have uh, beauty contests, best-looking broad in the office, and everybody had to parade around and get oh, voted on? Oh, yeah. It was a guy that was used to uh, run a health insurance company here in Massachusetts. So We, we only have time for squeezing one more quick one. Uh, Bill and Newton, you're going to finish this part of our discussion on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hey, how you doing? I got a question for you. Sure. If one were a Republic Alabaman, a Republican Alabaman, and couldn't stomach voting for Roy Moore, but could uh, obviously couldn't vote for a Democrat, uh, does that person have a right to write in his vote? I don't they know. do. Yes, there they is do. a write-in. I think there's two write-ins. I, I could pardon? be mistaken. I, I could be mistaken, but I know there's at least one write-in. There may be two write-ins. Well, my question to you folks is, I don't have no... Uh, does everybody in this country have a, a, a right to write in a vote for senator, whether it's in California or Maine? I, or, I believe oh, I it's know. different states. I, but I do know that you can in Alabama. And the only reason I know, Bill, and thank you for your call, is because people were talking about what would happen should, uh, should uh, more uh, listen to what was said about uh, when people said he should pull out of the race where the Republicans left for, with nothing because it was too late to get a new candidate. And the answer is they could write in Jeff Sessions, they could write in whenever they want. So Alabama, it's permitted. You have an update on Menendez, yes? Uh, yes, our staff just looked this up and said uh, the Washington Post reported anonymous tips are told at uh, the, uh, the press and the FBI in 2012 that Menendez paid for underage prostitutes in the Dominican Republic, but the allegations did not pan out. So that, Steve, is the latest we know. If you know something more than we do, please let us know. Thanks uh, for your calls. Okay, coming up, it is a tax explainer. MIT economist Jonathan Gruber is here to break down what it means for the 1% and what it means for all the rest of us. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. The tax plan passed in the Senate, 51 to 49, late Friday night, is a sprawling piece of legislation that could fundamentally change our society and way of life, not just on the tax front, 
but from education to the environment to infrastructure to health care. Make things worse for the poor, it will benefit the wealthy, that's a given. But what does that mean in practical terms for you and me? Joining us for another episode of Ask Me Anything, the GOP <laughs> tax plan edition, is Jonathan Gruber. John's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in designing Romney Care and the Affordable Care Act. John Gruber, nice to see you. Good to be here. So, John, just bring us up to current events. Now the Senate and the House are together, and they're going to try to reach an agreement on the disparate uh, plans. Right. So you've got two plans that on their basic outline are similar. The core provision is to cut the corporate tax rate to 20%. Uh, there's a lot of differences. For instance, the Senate plan would pay for part of its changes by getting rid of the individual mandate. That's not in the House plan. The House plan would tax wealthy universities on their endowments. That's not in the Senate plan. There's a lot of moving pieces, but by and large, they're pretty close. And by the way, they, I, I'm glad you, I'm not glad you said that, but that's the reality. So those in the media trying to create drama or creating fo- false drama, the reality is they are going to resolve their differences, and Trump's going to meet his goal of probably signing this thing before uh, Christmas. Is that not a fair statement? Well, it's, it's not a done deal. Remember, I was feeling pretty cocky Christmas Eve 2009 when the Senate passed the Affordable Care Act, not realizing Scott Brown was going to win the special election. There's a special election in Alabama. There are some things. So, for example, I just found out today that, you know, I don't know if you saw the Senate bill, but they made all of, like, handwritten changes at the last oh, yes. Of course we saw it. One handwritten change is to raise money. They put back in the alternative minimum tax for corporations, which they're yes. going to get rid of. But the problem is, having cut the corporate tax rate, that alternative minimum tax now hits a ton of corporations, and corporations aren't happy about that. So there's things they want to change. Yes. They, they, they definitely. So I think, Jim, the odds are high that it passes, but it, it's, it, is, it is not a done deal. And without get, getting totally lost in the weeds, uh, the president's initial position when this all started was, I want the corporate tax rate in the high teens. And then he said 20 was fine, which is what it is in the bills. And he has now said over the weekend, I could live with 22. And the reason, I assume, is because by allowing the rate to be a little bit higher, that pulls in billions of dollars that some people who want, like Marco Rubio, more for a child tax credit can get theirs. Some that are upset that the alternative minimum tax, which actually hits the wealthy in the Senate for individuals, not just corporations, Mm. is a problem. It gives them more money to spread around. Is that not what's going on? That's exactly right. That basically the question is how strong they feel about 20 versus some higher rate and how how they want to spread the money around. But the bigger... The, the, the fundamental issue here is that in the Senate bill, all the individual tax provisions expire. Yeah. They don't in the House bill. So let's be clear for everyone on the radio what's happening here. This is a permanent tax cut for corporations paid for by a temporary tax cut followed by a permanent tax increase on individuals. Right. Okay. And by the way, they so need to do that. For, I'm, not, I'm not defending it, but they would, the reason we're doing that, of course, they could have done it with corporations being temporary and the individuals being permanent, is because of their rule in the out years, this has to not have any impact on the deficit. Is that why they're doing this? That's right. But let's be clear. The only reason that rule matters is because they wouldn't even talk to Democrats. Mm-hmm. There are some conservative Democrats in the Senate. Okay? They wouldn't even talk to Democrats about ways that they could have peeled a couple of them off to support this law. As a result, they have to pass with only 50 votes. And as a result, they ha- it has to be a law which raised the deficit by only, I'm doing air quotes here, $1.5 trillion in the first decade, and by zero in the second decade. And the way they're doing that is by having the individual tax cuts phase out and actually turn to tax increases. So many Americans will pay more in taxes as a result of this law, not less. So you're an economist. Think of the most uh, conservative economists you know. Would they be willing to put their hand on a Bible and say, I agree with Mitch McConnell, this thing is going to end up paying for itself? Uh, there are no conservative economists who I 
know and even modestly respect who said that. Even the most conservative economists who recently said a, a letter, many of whom I know, supporting the tax cut, did not claim would pay for itself. No, no one claims it's going to pay for itself. So, so most everyone except for Donald Trump and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have conceded that this is a massive kiss for the 1% and the richest people in America. Where can people that are in the middle class, say between you know, 30,000 and 100,000 or 150,000, I don't know how you define the middle class anymore. But Everybody does it differently. Okay, so where can people in the middle class be hopeful? I know people's 401ks have been going up, and lots of middle class people have 401ks. I well, guess. I mean, we have to, I always think it's very important, Marjorie, to separate what the policy does from underlying things. There's lots of reasons to be hopeful for lots of things, but let's focus on the tax bill. Let's okay. focus on what that does to the middle class. Okay. So at the end of the day, by the last year that this tax bill hits, so by 2025, you're talking about a tax increase on the bottom 20% yeah. and a tax cut on the order of 0.1% of their income for the middle of the income distribution. So it's a tiny, tiny, it's a tax increase in the bottom, a tiny tax so cut poorest, in the middle. So the poorest people are, pay more. are going to pay more. That, and this is not counting the fact they're losing their health insurance. Ignoring the fact they're losing their health insurance, they're going to pay more. The middle class gets a small tax break, and the richest Americans see their incomes go up by, on average, 2%. Uh, so basically, which sounds like a small number, but at the end of the day, you're talking about tax cuts to the richest Americans, which are on the order of $100,000 a year to the top richest Americans, as opposed to about $500 a year for middle class. John Gruber, I want to be clear about something, though, that while people like Larry Summers, is uh, uh, obviously former head of Harvard and former secretary of the Treasury, are writing pieces saying things like 10,000 people will die a year because of the repeal of this mandate, even if the repeal of the mandate doesn't make it through this conference, the health care uh, individual mandate doesn't make it through the conference and is eliminated, the conventional wisdom, uh, and I want to know if you subscribe to this, is this is going to so tighten local budgets, particularly in blue states with high uh, state and local taxes, which are going to have to rein them in because they're no longer deductible, that there are going to be backdoor ultimate cuts in things like Medicaid, for example, as a result of this, this, the, the, the configuration of this tax cut. Is that not you so? You don't have to conjecture that. You've already heard in this letter there's nine very conservative uh, economists wrote and other conservative economists have been saying, they've been saying, let's do this tax cut. It's good for growth. And then let's deal with the deficit by cutting social programs. Mm -hmm. So it's not hidden. It's the agenda. Orrin Hatch stood up and said, we cannot afford the $14 billion we need to keep paying for health insurance for children at the same time as he supported a $1.5 trillion tax cut, 60% of which goes to the top 1% of Americans. The agenda is transparent. The question is, will the American voter put up with it? Republicans seem to think they will by saying, oh, don't worry, it's a big tax cut. I think it's a tax cut. The question is, at the end of the day, if a middle-class American is getting $500, but as a result, his Medicare is going to get cut, his health insurance is going to get cut, his Medicaid is going to get cut, does the middle-class American set up and say, wait a second, this was a bad deal? Well, you know, speaking of middle-class Americans, I, 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 historically, uh, I hope this doesn't upset that emailer before, very conservative Republicans, with some exceptions, have not been wild supporters of what li they like to call entitlement programs. But let's talk about something that the middle class benefits from, education. Try to rationalize for me. We talked to Paul Revel the other day, former Secretary of Education, talking about the education impacts in this bill, and most people can recite them. The end of the deductibility of your student loans, what was it, $2,500? Teachers can't deduct the $250. 
uh, out of pocket for expenses. Uh, uh, graduate teaching assistants are going to have their, uh, their quote, wages, and I use air quotes there, taxed endowments, which in many cases help subsidize low-income uh, students, uh, money from the endowments. I mean, across the board, this is an assault on education. How does that fulfill a Republican dream? Again, I understand the cuts on poor people because they should all go back to work and be productive. They shouldn't depend on us, the argument goes. I mean, that is what... The th but how do they defend what is obviously going to happen to education? Uh, look, I, I don't know. I mean, basically, you know, I, I wrote an editorial about sort of the, all the anti-growth features of this law. I mean, they're supposed to be a pro-growth party, right. but they're doing all the things you said. They're cutting back corporate tax breaks for research and development. So much as they give new tax breaks to the wealthiest Americans, they're reducing the benefits corporations get from doing research and development, which is the engine of our growth. At the end of the day, they are appealing to the fact that right now among Republican voters, higher education is not popular. 58% of Republicans think universities are bad for America. Okay. Because of their liberal politics. Is that where it comes for from? For various reasons. So, but, I, but the bottom line is Republicans are appealing to those voters, not trying to do what's good for the country. We didn't see your, uh, your piece about what this uh, does to uh, growth. What's the, what's the argument you make? Well, basically the argument we make as economists is the engine of growth is productivity. And the engine of productivity in our economy is knowledge. And the way you make knowledge is by educating people especially graduate students who can go on and invent the technologies of the future here in the U.S. Look, if we don't invent them, they're going to get invented just in other countries. It's slowing growth because it's limiting the ability of, of uh, companies to get a tax break for the research and development. And ultimately, a huge increase in the deficit slows growth by raising interest rates and making companies less willing to invest in well, research. Well, let's talk about that because um, I've seen many stories talking about uh, a coming recession and uh, huge interest rate increases. Is that hysterical uh, or is that... I think, I think that's hysterical because I think that this by itself will not lead to huge interest rate increases. The point is, however, we have a long-run budget deficit problem. Right. And that we, something has to give. Either we have to spend less on entitlements or raise more in taxes. Something has to give over the next 20 years. And the, by taking this step towards making that deficit even bigger... Okay, it's essentially saying what Republicans want to give is a social safety net. The problem is Americans have shown they like that social safety net. Yeah. Remember, Obamacare repeal failed not because people like the mandate, but because they like Medicaid and they like those subsidies. So the question is, who's going to be the adult in the room? Okay, Democrats tried to be the adult in the room. Bill Clinton built a surplus. George Bush wasted it. Obama came in and had a huge, took a, hu a crashing economy and a devastatingly huge deficit, cut it but from 2% of GDP to half a percent of GDP. Now Trump's wasting it again. The question is when the Democrats come back in, are they going to continue to be willing to be the adults in the room? Or are they going to say, why do we keep playing by the rules when the other party breaks it? We're going to be fiscally responsible too. And then what happens? We're talking to Jonathan Gruber, MIT economist, about the, the tax plan. I want to ask you too about uh, health care because, of course, you were very much involved in the creation of Obamacare and in Romneycare here in, in Massachusetts. So... What does it mean if they do uh, prevail? It's the Senate that wants to get rid of the Obamacare mandate, mandate yes. right? Yes. So what, what will the impact of that be just not on Obamacare but on, on health care in general and the cost of health care to people who are not on Obamacare like most of us are not? Right. I mean, so most of the effects will be felt within Obamacare. So the main effects will be that many people have insurance today will lose it. And the premiums in the Obamacare exchanges will rise significantly. 
However, because the healthiest people are probably the, the ones who are going to say, "I'm exactly. going to drop." Okay. The healthiest so this people could be the out. end. This could be the end of Obamacare. It, it, it won't be the end because remember, most people in the exchanges are subsidized. Yeah. They just pay a fixed percent of income. What Trump is doing, ironically, what this law does, ironically, is it's the end of the part of Obamacare that wasn't a government program. Okay, it's turning Obamacare into a government entitlement because what's left, Medicaid's left, the tax subsidies to low-income people to buy insurance are left. All you're doing is getting rid of the people who are buying insurance on their own, the people who are voluntarily, voluntarily participating. They go because premiums get too high. There is another effect on all of us, though, which is when there's more uninsured, that's more uninsured people going to the hospital, that's more uncompensated care, and that's higher medical costs for all of us. One of the major accomplishments of the Affordable Care Act was reducing hospital uncompensated care, which fell by almost half since the Affordable Care Act was passed. When that goes back up, that's higher hospital bills for the rest of us. We're talking to Jonathan Gruber from MIT. You know, Jonathan, I, I know this is obvious, but I'll state the obvious anyway. Part of the problem here, Marjorie and I have fought back and forth since this tax thing started about how do you sell this credibly to the American uh, people. And my contention has been as long as you convince the middle class they're getting something, uh, they're not saying to themselves, well, the rich guys are getting a disproportionate share. I'll take mine. But it seems to me, and I, I'm wondering if you've ever done research on this, the ability of, of, of the average person to make the connection that having a tax cut, which creates a huge additional deficit, means down the line that they're going to have to be deep cuts in things that you care about, whether it's your local infrastructure, whether it's your schools, your health care, et cetera. That's a pretty great leap. I mean, for someone like you, obviously, it, they all are interconnected. But does the average person, even when they're told by the likes of the generic you, do they get that connection? Or sort of Ronald Reagan's brilliance to me was separating spending from taxation, is you can cut taxation and, and, and not affect uh, spending, even though it's not true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it no, I, I do. I mean, another way to put what you're saying is how do you get Americans to care about the deficit? Now, there is... And the Im no, the impact of the, the deficit the, the, on the, things they care about. On things they care about. Now, there is one positive example in our history, which was Ross Perot, who ran for president, got 90% of the vote, and a lot of his campaign was based on point. reducing the deficit. Yeah. So we ha do have in our not-too-distant past someone who made a lot of political hay out of this issue. There's no one recently who's done it. Th the problem, Jim, is it's not a one-for-one -one connection. So when we make right. these cuts – now, it is true there actually is a p partial one-for-one -one connection, which has not been emphasized enough, which is there's another law that Congress is running up against called the PAYGO law. And the PAYGO law says that all tax cuts need to be paid for with offsetting spending cuts. This law violates PAYGO. So unless Congress suspends PAYGO, there's going to be automatic spending cuts, direct one-for-one. One. Medicare will be cut $25 billion because of this tax increase. Now, Republicans are saying, oh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll cover that. We'll figure it out. I don't know why anybody trusts any promises they make right now. So let's be clear. There's a direct connection, Jim, which is not getting enough attention. This law will cut your Medicare by $25 billion, which is that, much more than the middle class tax cut. And what does that mean? Does that mean it cuts what is covered under Medicare or no, if you it, go to the hospital or your prescriptions? What does that mean? It cuts what providers are reimbursed under Medicare, okay. which is going to lower your access, 
which is going to make put more financial strain on hospitals. They'll be less able to deal with other groups as well. And that and, and that would impact nursing homes as well. Yeah, uh, not no, nursing homes are primarily Medicaid. Okay, it's Medicaid. Mostly hospitals okay. and doctors would be. But you impacted. know, it's one okay. of these things. I'm hearkening back a couple months ago when you wrote that piece in the New York Times with a couple of your colleagues about, and I'll paraphrase, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Hey, for those of you who think Medicaid is just for those poor people over there who we should care about, but that's them. This is your mother at the nursing home. Right. This is you in the nursing home in 10 years or, 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 or whatever it is. When the, the approach to selling so many things in politics is really the big lie, this is bad for me, says Donald Trump. My rich friends are really upset with, with, with me. I guess one has to believe it's working with enough of the population, including several hundred Republicans in Congress, that they're voting for something that even they should know is not what they're offering up. Well, I mean, in some sense, it's a big test. It's in some sense one of the most important tests our democracy has faced, which is essentially they've decided they are going to try to lie their way to tax cuts for the rich. Not bend the truth, but break the truth. And the question is, will they pay at the polls? And many of them think they won't. Many of them think, look, our voters mostly watch Fox News, which is covering this as a big win, not covering the fact Medicare will be cut by $25 billion, and that this is confusing, and we're claiming it's good, and people listen to us. So it's a fundamental question of whether truth and facts matter in political debates anymore. By the way, Chuck Todd from Meet the Press, who plays down the middle, told us last Thursday on this show, I think he used the word nightmare to describe what this tax bill is, in his estimation, is going to be for Republicans come 2018. Uh, What about about small businesses that we heard so much about? Are they getting the relief that... Uh, they've been promised. You mean this pass-through thing? Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so basically, here's how it works. Most of the stuff we buy is from corporations. They're called C-corporations, you know, General Motors, General Mills, Mm -hmm. etc. But most of the firms in the economy are not C-corporations. They're what's called S-corporations. They're basically, uh, they're they're, they're partnerships. They're sole proprietorships. They're your dentist, your doctor, your lawyer, your auto dealer. That is a lot of what, that's most of the corporate, it's not most of the money, but it's most of the corporations. Mm -hmm. Those individuals, when they make money, pay the individual tax rate, not the corporate tax rate. Now, typically those rates have been fairly similar, so it hasn't mattered. The problem is if you cut the corporate tax rate, but leave the individual tax rate high, then suddenly those auto dealers, those doctors, those lawyers are saying, wait a second, corporations are paying lower rate, why do I have to pay a higher rate? So they wanna give a tax break to those folks too. The problem is that costs too much money. So how are they doing it? The way they're doing it is by saying, well, our tax break doesn't apply to lawyers. It doesn't apply to doctors. It just applies to guys who own small businesses. So the auto dealers get a break, but the lawyers and the doctors don't. It's a very strange way to do it, but it's sort of they're trying to essentially give a break to some small businesses, but a particularly strange set of them. And how do they decide who gets and who doesn't? Basically, this is terrific. You only get it if you have passive income. That if you're actually working to earn your money, you don't get a tax break. Active income, you don't get a tax break. Passive income, which is the income you just make from owning a business, then you get a tax so break. So Donald Trump, the New York Times reporter a few weeks ago, owns 500 of yes. those. I assume that's passive income. That's passive income. Of- but let's be clear. This is the party of work and individual responsibility. And they are mm-hmm. saying, if you work as a small business, we're not going to give you a tax break. But if you own a small business and it's passive, we then are. you get the tax break. I mean, this is, this is a nightmare. And it, it, it's a horrible piece of policy. And along so many dimensions, it's hard to cover them in 20 minutes, let alone an hour. You know, uh, one quick thing. Uh, I hear all the time people say about the estate tax. Well, 
I, I have no problem with the estate tax, even though it's for wealthy people, because why should money be taxed twice? And I'm thinking, well, it's only it's not taxed twice by the children that inherit the money. It's only taxed. Let's by be their clear. So, so, so there's two problems with that argument. Yep. First of all, what about when you buy something at CVS? You yep. pay a sales tax. You're taxed twice then. Why do we want to get rid of the estate tax, which applies to the 4,000 wealthiest families every year, yet raises 20 billion? But we're fine with paying twice when we go to CVS to buy something. How are we paying That's twice? At because CVS? your because income is taxed. Your income is taxed, and you're paying sales tax. tax. Okay. It's the same thing. The second of all is you're not taxed twice with the estate tax, and here's why: because most income for the wealthiest in the form of capital gains, uh-huh. and capital gains are not taxed when you die, except for the estate tax. So let's be clear. Well, if we get rid of the estate tax, as Republicans want to do, then if I bought a painting for $100 and it's worth a million when I die, then that million is totally untaxed. By the way, a lot of you may be frustrated because you wanted to ask Jonathan Gruber questions, but we did too. We promise you we'll have Act 2 of Gruber answering all your tax questions before Christmas, Jonathan. Thanks yeah. for Thank agreeing you. to that. Thank you very much, Jonathan Gruber. John is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both Romney Care and the Affordable Care Act, and he is a BPR computer a computer contributor. Well, he is actually like a computer <laughs> sort in of many is. ways. He can Thank really you very much, John. Thank you. Up See next, you, John. when a man turned up in the ER with a do not resuscitate order, what happened? Our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, joins us for that and more. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, broadcasting from the Boston Public Library. At noon from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, we're joined by medical ethicist Art Kaplan on the CVS purchase of Aetna and what it'll mean for healthcare and can't afford a real shrink? Well, have we got a robot for you. (laughs) We will open the lines and ask you about the robots Jim just mentioned. What are they? Robot shrinks. Could you go for one? Imagine. You won't have to worry about your therapist judging you anymore. Corby Cummer, our food man, asks if becoming a chef is bad for your health. Plus, London bans fast food joints next to city schools and very fancy dining for your pets, Corby will explain. Gun control activist John Rosenthal sends lawmakers graphic images of gun violence victims. He joins us here at the library. And Harvard Business School historian Nancy Kane puts the GOP tax plan in the context of history. More than 50 years of tax reform. Are we better off or worse? All that coming up on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. He is Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It is Tuesday. We are broadcasting live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. So it's winter kind of thing, but it is let's winter. not talk about it. Okay. So with the Aetna deal, CVS is aiming to turn its pharmacies into healthcare hubs. No doubt CVS will have a better selection of magazines in the doctor's <laughs> office, but what about the quality of care? And if you feel iffy about CVS entering the healthcare industry, is it worse when doctors are in the business of piercing kids' ears and charging a whopping $1,800 for their services? Join us online for his take on these and other medical ethical issues is Art Kaplan. Art is the doctors William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Chair and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center. He's also the co-host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast. Hello there, Art Kaplan. 
How are you? That uh, introduction seems to be getting longer. You'll have to add in the uh, honorary captaincy in the Bulgarian Navy pretty soon. I actually had that. Marjorie <laughs> cut it off. So we'll, we'll do it next week. So, Art Kaplan, since I spent half of my life at CVS already, <laughs> gotten flu shots there, had the kids check for strep throats, and it's much better than being in the emergency room for six hours all night long, um, or not to mention ear infections with babies, is this, is this a good thing or not a good thing? Mixed. Um, I think CVS and other big uh, sort of pharmacy chains are going to get more and more in the business of delivering primary health care services. Like you said, Marjorie, you already get a ton of flu shots given out uh, in that setting. I see they're adding in uh, other kinds of shots and vaccines and many of these CVS too. And pretty soon, I think, there'll be a nurse there who will monitor your blood pressure or maybe for diabetes, keep track of your uh, sugar levels in your bloodstream, that sort of thing. And I think that's okay, um, as long as everybody is, you know, qualified and so forth. That sounds like an easier way to get primary care for a lot of people. Whether it turns out to be cheaper, we'll have to see, but at least it's less waiting and certainly better than the emergency room. Don't want to be doing that sort of stuff there. Downsides. When you merge in with a big insurance company, boy, it's the end of privacy. I mean, they know what you're doing on the insurance side. Now CVS will know what you're doing in terms of prescriptions and when you visit them. And they're just going to have your health info. And so you can look forward to a lot of hectoring emails and uh, pestering uh, phone calls that say, get in. You know, they, I don't know about you, Marjorie, but they're already calling me every five minutes to come get a prescription that they yeah, fill. Yeah, that's um, a good there's point. There's going to be a lot more of that because yep. now they'll be watching your insurance record as well. And that's just a gigantic database, by the way, fraught with hacking and leaking, inadvertent leaking and accident possibilities about sensitive health information. I think the other issue is, so if these big insurance companies own CVS, are they going to start sort of... Uh, underwriting you and saying, you know, you're not compliant. Marjorie never does come in and fill her prescriptions. She misses 10% of them. I don't think that's a person we want to insure anymore. So you start seeing issues around uh, what they use to underwrite uh, your insurance um, because they now know what you're doing at the CVS in terms of uh, whether you're going to get your care. So it's it's a mixed bag. Um, well, I, I however, think our- I think it's the march toward it is pretty inevitable. Also, can I go back to your first thing? Having these, I live in a neighborhood where there's an, there, there are two urgent care clinics within a block and a half of my house, which really ch- changes everything in terms of access to care. Obviously, we care about quality, too. But what are there, 9,000 CVSs around the country? Aetna is one of the biggest health care providers. So while I have worries about... I, I think the, I saw a number that said 70% of Americans live within a mile of one. So, yeah, well, that's amazing. But, but, yeah. but, but my point is that while all the potential downsides are ones that hopefully both, reg- well, regulators aren't going to care about them anymore, but uh, we, people like you will worry about and police as best you can, the fact that there's going to be such incredible access, it's already happening, is a huge step in the right direction, right? Right. I mean, I, I think there are simple, basic health prevention and health monitoring things that can be done. Uh, get the right nurse staffing, uh, the CVS equivalent of the Urgy Clinic or the uh, whatever they call them in the stores, 
and you'll get more access that way. In some sense, medicine has failed the American people because it's got too many specialists and not enough generalists. And mm-hmm. we can argue about why that is, but it just is. And um, you're going to have to have more nurses and physician assistants uh, out there. They're going to have to be the person power to deliver this care. And I think the CVS setting, you know, it's as good as any other. You know, I just want to be clear on what this one thing. Does all the snooping into what you're uh, doing is if you're insured through Aetna or if you're insured through anybody? Does this mean if you have Tufts or Blue Cross? Electronic or, medical records. So it's a new age, that, right? Uh, for this one, it's, it would be Aetna. It would be Aetna, okay. So and then would, eventually it'll be everybody. Okay. We'll all right. All the records you know, our, one last thing about this. You know, I realized I, I actually use a Walgreens, not a CVS. But so when I was walking around Walgreens in a Johnny with the back open the other night, that was <laughs> that was premature. Is that what you're saying? It's premature, and you should not let the um, kid behind the counter uh, do your. Uh, Tonsillectomy. Okay, yeah. fine. Let's leave it at that. All I can think Thank about is much. having to be all night in emergency rooms for earaches because your no, doctor's I, I'm office you. is closed. And it's just when your children are little, it's a real big savings, it seems to me. But anyway, let's move on to another reason why I had to be wear, uh, wary of hospitals. Tell us about this mother in Colorado who thought she was getting just a little special something extra from the surgeon when he offered to pierce her daughter's ear. This is incredible. I don't remember the price. What was it? Sixteen hundred and seventy-seven dollars. Yeah. So here's a lesson: before you say yes, ask. What's that going to cost? Um, so remember, these are completely um, uh, non-covered, uh, uh, non-necessary medical interventions. The doctors are happy to do them, but you're going to pay full price, as much as they can charge, because it's an elective, optional, not necessary thing. No insurance is going to cover it. How they got up to that price, I have no idea. I literally can't imagine. I think, uh, weren't there people piercing ears in jewelry stores and yes, stuff? For free. For free. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, what I don't understand is how the heck this surgeon offered to do this without telling her she, it was going to cost her money. It seems to be a well, total... When does, your, when does your doctor tell you well, how much of not anything usually, is going to cost? Usually your surgeon isn't saying, hey, while you're here, I'll give you a haircut. Or while I'll, <laughs> you're here, I'll pierce your ear. You know, they... they this is you're there for medical. It's the, it's the old barber surgeon. Yeah, it, exactly. So haircut and the gallbladder. But it seems like seal. it seems like she had to fight tooth and nail to get the hospital to uh, lower the cost of her. Did they ever, or did she lose this one? I thought that they. I think they're still fighting about it. You know, our, but so, the, I mean, my lesson is: consumer beware. Always ask if it's some kind of an elective thing. I don't care if you ask about whether the price is on anything, but. Uh, certainly, if you're going to get an elective procedure, here's the other ethics question: Do five-year-olds need pierced ears? Yeah, but I think a lot, you see a lot of people with very young children. Very um, young children. I think it's also a cultural thing too that some people pierce their ears really young. But can we get away from the ear piercing for a second to the larger question, which just folds into is the massive amount of uh, wasteful healthcare spending, and they're estimating somewhere in the you know, a quarter of all spending, three quarters of a trillion dollars. I told you the story last year, I think. I had Don Berwick on my television show, the former mm-hmm. head of Medicare and Medicaid, and I was remarking about some recent 
a study on health wasteful spending, and I said, I can't believe I didn't know about this. Did you know about it? I say to Berwick, and he said something like, you mean when I wrote the report on this 15 <laughs> years ago? So uh, uh, is, any, is progress being made on this front? No. This is a colossal amount. Why? Uh, too much money being made, no real incentive to try and do anything about it. Remember, the customer or the patient often doesn't see the cost. It uh-huh. just gets buried in some third-party thing. Um, I think the insurer's attitude is, <clears throat> you want ear-piercing coverage? Sure, we'll raise your premium. You can have whatever you want. Right. We'll, we'll add that in. So I don't see any, again, I think of it as a failure of the market. Um, there's nobody sort of watching the price, and there's no pressure to drive it down. You know, by the way, uh, Colorado Children's Hospital was going to make this woman pay the full 1877 mm-hmm. well, bucks um, until... The media, in the form of ProPublica, inquired about the bill, and then suddenly the hospital canceled the remaining balance. But let's move on to something else that I think is a really fascinating story. Uh, A man who uh, was dying of, uh, I believe it was cancer, had terrible cataracts, and he wanted to be able to see his family in the few weeks he had left before he died. Talk about a medical ethicist. Mm -hmm. Great one. What do you think, Art Kaplan? So this guy was developing these cataracts. I I believe it was within the past year or two. He definitely had a terminal illness. He had a wish, which was to be able to see his family before he died. And the ophthalmologist, the eye doctor, said, gee, I don't know if it's worth removing your cataracts. That's expensive. You're not going to get that much use out of your eyes because you're going to die. I'm not sure we should do this, to which I would say, are you crazy? This is a major quality of life enhancement. It's part of what I would call palliative care, you know, making somebody comfortable at the end of life. It's always good to be able to see not only your family, but the menu or whether a tube has fallen out of your body or television or many other things that sight helps us do. So to me, it's open and shut. You ought to be doing this procedure. Cataract surgery isn't that expensive. It's not crazy expensive. Um... So I, don't even, I can't even believe that cost was tossed up as a, 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 an issue on this one. It's such a benefit to have your site. But you're, raising, but, but you're raising the cost issue, too. I mean, I looked it up, and it said cataract surgery, on average, costs 3000 bucks. It's done very quickly. Let's, and I'm mm-hmm. with you on this, but let's assume it was $103,000, and the man said the same thing. In the, and by the way, he ultimately died a few weeks later. Yeah. I want to be able to drive again. I want to be able to see my family again, all of which I think is hugely important. But instead of a few thousand bucks, it was a ton of money. Where's the, how do you decide as an ethicist Where's the line on the financial spectrum? I assume there is one, isn't there? Or well, is there? a ton of money to keep you in bed, nauseated, um, unable to eat anything, unable to uh, do anything except lie there. Mm-hmm. There are some drugs that can extend your life for a lot of money in that manner, and I think that's an argument as to whether that's worthwhile. A really just simple life extension when, let's say, you're nearly comatose or you're miserable. I can imagine people saying, that's just not worth doing to get another month. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just crazy. But on the flip side, restoring sight as part of the quality of life that somebody could enjoy, that's major. So I would spend $100,000, not mm-hmm. just three. It seems to me 
you'd cut the cost of having to have an aide or someone to take you around or someone to toilet you. And all. I mean, you can sort of make the case that site restoration for anybody who's hospitalized and is going to be spending time, let's say, in a nursing home or someplace like that, boy, you'd still come out ahead. So to me, that one's cost effective for sure. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm so glad you said that, Art Kaplan, because it, you know th this piece talks about the fact that a third of Medicare dollars is spent in the last years of a patient's mm -hmm. life. And we do go, and you hear these stories all the time about the, the children are fighting. Do we let dad go? Do we not let dad mm -hmm. go? No, we're not going to let dad go. And we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars keeping dad in practically, practically a vegetative state. So this is like talking about uh, it, not just prolonging life and as you say, when someone's in a coma and they're uh, and they're practically out of it completely and improving life, and they talk about how this guy uh, got to go to a family reunion uh, no, in the last story. weeks of his life. He was able to drive himself around. Mm -hmm. It just seems that our focus is on the wrong thing that because we can't make up our mind what enough is enough. And we don't want to well, talk Well, I agree with that. And I think if you ask dying people, would you rather have another month of life miserable, yeah. or would you rather have somebody pay for your hearing aid to make sure that it works, a lot of them would say, you know, um, even if I didn't get that extra month of life, I'd like to be able to hear uh, while I'm dying. So I can, you know, quality of life is important, and that has to weigh into these decisions. We just don't like to get into it because, as Jim started to say, you know, where's the line and how do you do it? But there are definitely miserable conditions that I think very few people would pick as a state to be in if they couldn't see, hear, move, eat, ambulate, do anything, be responsive. That's, believe it or not, the place where we get into a lot of arguments about should we let dad go. Um, I think the answer is it's pretty clear that dad probably wouldn't want to be that way, nor yeah. would you. Um, but on the other hand, finding ways to let people eat or hear or see, <laughs> those are pretty valuable yeah. to people in terms of quality of life. So you I don't think amazing? we quality of life enough, to put it simply. You know, I am perfectly healthy, and my two daughters were having the exact same conversation. That I, Should we let Dad go? <laughs> so, I don't know. I really don't know what to, what to yeah. make Was of it. Was there something that triggered that? Yeah, Did they read about these not quite state sure. tax. <laughs> Figured take advantage of it fast. Well, you can. Yeah. We're talking Art Kaplan, medical ethicist from NYU. So th this is an, a, a great story. I did not know that, um, that women are sometimes born without a uterus, but apparently they are. And now for the first time, a woman with a transplanted uterus gave birth. It ha just happened at Baylor. Baby seems to be okay. Interest this, uh, now, this gets us right into the quality of life. Right. Very smart, Marjorie. You went right to a... <laughs> Quality of life case yeah. right after that discussion because, remember, the woman doesn't have a uterus, but she uh, is only getting a transplant and carrying the baby for the experience of carrying the baby during yep. pregnancy. It's solely quality of life because you could look for a surrogate mother, yep. right? You don't have to do it yourself or ask a sister or somebody to carry your baby if you wanted to, and a lot of people do that. I know that surrogacy is illegal in some states, but... People go to other states and kind of hire the surrogate. So um, this procedure is done solely to give you that experience. But here's a problem. Because of the way the uh, uterus has to be taken out and reconnected, you don't get the nerves. You get the belly and you get sort of the weight, but you don't get the sensation from the fetus inside oh. you. Mm -hmm. oh. So it's kind of carrying the baby, but not 
the same way would be in a normal pregnancy. And just so listeners know, you put the uterus in, it uh, has the uh, baby in there, but then you have to have a C-section because it's too much force. It would damage the uterus and tear it apart. So you have to C-section out the uh, baby, and then you have to remove the uh, uterus. It's kind of a one-use only, and you don't want to keep giving somebody immunosuppressive drugs. So this thing is a miracle in a way, but it's also complicated because you're spending a lot of money to have a partial experience. It's a quality of life procedure. Okay, so medical ethicist, do you think this is something we should be spending money on? Because part of the whole thing about carrying a baby is feeling the baby. Yeah, I wouldn't cover it by insurance. Would I ban it? No. People want to pay for it. I think that's okay. But I'm not sure this procedure is one when there are options yeah. that you really have to sort of drive forward. And I'm not sure there's going to be a big market for it, to tell you the truth. Because you can kind of understand the limits of uterine transplant. They may wind up saying, you know, maybe we'll use a gestational mom. Because you could also have your own egg. If mom didn't have a uterus, she could use her own eggs and her Correct. husband's sperm, and they could have their biological child, but she just would not carry it. Correct. And, you know, you can sometimes find a family member to help you for free. I mean, it, they, they, that does happen. We have volunteers who carry children for their sister. I've seen moms do it for their daughters. Yep. Um, not common, but I've seen it. And so, you know, you got to pay for the immunosuppression for this procedure, which yeah. is limited because the thing's only in there nine months or eight months. But it's not cheap. Not cheap. You know, Art Kaplan, I want to touch on this next thing quickly because I have my appointment with my Wobot soon, and I really want to get to that. <laughs> you know, this story, everywhere I go on the Internet, people are talking about this thing. It was out of the New England Journal of Medicine about this guy, I think he was 70 years old, who had a tattoo, DNR, uh, and the implication was, was do not resuscitate. And I am the, stunned. The whole words were crossed. Was I am stunned mm-hmm. that there's such mm-hmm. a big debate about this, the notion being that doctors, medical professionals should decide to not resuscitate because of a tattoo without any supporting documentation? I don't get this at all. Am I missing something or no? You're missing the tattoo part. Well, apparently I am. The, um, so people are saying, look, for a long time people have worn bracelets. A few people have had medical directives tattooed on themselves to say, don't resuscitate me. They mean it. Who's going to get that? DNR is not exactly, you know, rosy. Um, you're not tattooing yourself with some sort of uh, design or military insignia or your favorite boyfriend or girlfriend or something. Of course they mean it. Why aren't you paying attention to the fact that they went so far as to put that order right on them? So that's the, the strong argument. On the other hand, I'm with you. I mean, I think you got to have an advanced directive. Write down your wishes Put them on a piece of paper, have some people witness it, exactly. update it on periodically. Your state of mind, exactly. Go ahead, I'm sorry. And then put that in your wallet or your pocketbook and have that with you, too. You can tattoo yourself, that's great, but that's a trigger <laughs> to saying, you know, let's check and see what's up, let's talk to his family, let's talk to his friends, let's see if we can find some sort of written statement. Tattoos, you know, look, let's face it, they're not legally binding. They're, they're, they're kind of body art. They're not... Uh, the same as you could put your will on your body, too, I guess. Let's, let's, you know, you could write down, I'm leaving my money, but never to gym. Um, yeah. Just, you know, it's right here in my arm. Um, but I don't think that's the way to go long term. No. You just have to think about someone who goes to the tattoo artist and says, 
I want to have big letters, do not resuscitate, put across my chest. It's, a, it's an unusual sort Yeah, but of how thing. do you know they're not like smoking dope well, when they're doing it? Well, they could be smoking it, dope. It's just an odd kind of well, thing. Well, it is What does odd. it say about your psyche? I'm not worth resuscitating okay, or it's a joke or You know what knows? they should do if they do, they do that? Do, as Jim? far as I'm concerned, they should go see a Wobot. Now... <laughs> Now, I had never heard of Wobots before, and as I'm sure Marjorie will hey, tell Hey, by the way, I, I do a little public service. Yeah. Yeah. No public service. Tattoos are no substitute for having that awful conversation with your family Correct. members about what you want. So That's have right. it. doesn't matter if you tattoo yourself up and down. You make sleeves of DNR orders on your arms. Okay. Still got to have that conversation. Okay, so can you describe to people for $39 a month, after a two-week free trial, if you can't afford a regular shrink, you can go see a Wobot. And amazingly, there is apparently incredibly high satisfaction rates with these robotic uh, 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 shrinks, uh, therapist kind of thing. Can you describe it and tell us what your position is on this? No, I Thank cannot. You. Okay, so I will describe <laughs> it. It's essentially you have this, this machine who provides uh, uh, mental health care for you in great part because I don't know if you saw the Kaiser Family Foundation study, Art Kaplan, that more than 100 million people, it's roughly a third of the country, live in areas that are federally designated as having a shortage of mental health care professionals. So instead you go to a Wobot. And here's some of the comments, Art. I think these will impress you. These are Wobot uh, users. I love Wobot so much. I hope we can be friends forever. I actually feel super good and happy when I see it remembered in quotes to check in with me. Next one, Wobot is a fun little dude, and I hope he keeps improving. On and on. A lot of people, apparently, there are two million conversations a week already going on, apparently. So what, what's your take on the Wobot you as missed, opposed you to... You left out the most important what part. Is, I missed that. What is it? Because, and some of us uh, know people who spent many, many years in therapy, many. but they don't really want to be straight with their therapist about what's going on in their life because they're too worried about being embarrassed and humiliated. And Jim confessed that this morning. But if you went to a robot, he wouldn't have to Why would you ever tell your shrink the truth? So <laughs> it's ridiculous. Exactly. So what do you, what's your take on this? It's affordable. It doesn't talk back. What do you, I'm serious. But by the way, you know, these, this is not a new idea. There was a program years ago you could just put in your computer that I think had six responses. That's okay. Please go on. I think you're not telling me the truth. And I think they were random, and people love that. But I these thought, are not oh. random. There's, this is like an AI kind of experience here. No, I understand. I understand. But my point being, it doesn't take a lot to give people some uh, relief of mental anxiety, mental health issues. Sometimes you just need a responsive chime or something. So I'm not hugely shocked. On the other hand... The robots aren't really there yet to pick up who's got suicidal impulses That's and all the rest of it. It's yeah. kind of a charming thing that's fun right now if you want to, uh, you know, amuse yourself and see if it, it's a little bit like talking to Siri. Remember the movie where the guy fell yeah. in love with Siri? Yeah, yeah I love um, that movie. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of dopey creatures. We can be misled into affective relationships with a rock if we think the rock is looking at us in a nice way. So, But on a serious uh, note, can you not see how some people might find this uh, uh, of use? Y yes or no? Mm, I see how they find it of use. I don't trust it yet. Do I think the future is to have some sort of robot programmed algorithm to help counsel people? Yeah, I do. I just don't think these, I think these things are toys. That's all. 
Remember when the guy in Siri took the computer away for a romantic weekend in the cabin in the woods? Scarlett Johansson, wasn't that, wasn't that who it was? <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. That was the voice, wasn't it? Yeah, the voice, Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Yeah, it was great. So, Art Kaplan, what is on the Everyday Ethics podcast, please? Better be Wobot if you know what you're doing there. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to be outed as a Wobot. It's yeah. all been mechanical all these many years. There's, there's no ethicist there at all. What's on the podcast? Um, so uh, what we're going to talk about is an interesting phenomenon in ethics called acrasia. Acrasia. What is that? Weakness of will. Why is it that people can't do the right thing even though they know what the right thing is to do? You're not going to convince me that all the sexual harassment stuff people needed an ethics lesson, right? Uh-huh. They just decided, I'm powerful. I'll do it. Or to take it down to mundane levels, um, I watch football. I think football is immoral. There was a guy who just got a spinal cord injury that was serious in a football game, pro football game. The injuries are horrendous. The concussions are brutal. But somehow I find myself still watching, and that's weakness of will. I know it's wrong. I don't believe it's the right thing to do. Why can't I do it? Why can't I get myself to do the right thing? Oh, this is a great one. What's the word one more time? We're going to listen. Acrasia, A-K-R-A. Great. Like Asia. Great. Hey, Art, pleasure as always. Thanks so much for your time. Art Kaplan, thank Thanks. you very much. Art Kaplan joins us every week. He's the Drs. William F. and Virginia Conley Committee Chair, Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Medical Center, and the co host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast. Coming up, goodbye, Alpo. Hello, Artisanal. <laughs> Is Fido becoming a foodie. Corby Kummer joins us to talk about the latest advances in pet food. He joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. British Parliament recently debated if Donald Trump should be banned from the U.K. But is there really a distinction between banning him and banning fast food franchises? London's mayor is working to block the likes of McDonald's, and it just might help to keep the Donald away, too. Joining us for his take on this, the mental health hazards of being a chef and other headlines about food policy and food culture, is Corby Kummer. Corby's an award-winning food writer, restaurant critic, senior editor at The Atlantic, and columnist for The New Republic. Hello, Corby Kummer. Hello there. So, Corby Kummer, this is an amazing story. I mean, um, no more McDonald's and Pizza Huts and Burger Kings, whatever else they got in London. They don't want them near schools anymore. Love this. So because uh, our president's main diet is <laughs> McDonald's and fast food, if it takes banning them to get the president not to come to your country, it will have been worth it. And it could have a big beneficial side effect of improving childhood obesity. Because as we know, and we talk about on this show a lot, one in five children aged 11 is obese in both the United Kingdom and this country. So what to do about it? For a long time, there's been a theory based on a 2009 study that if you ban fast food outlets within, I don't know how is many feet. a mile feet, or is it, I don't remember. What walking is, distance, which is, it is walk, vague, oh, even better. of a fast food outlet, you will decrease the likelihood that kids will go out at recess, uh, go out at lunch, and just 
nip over and get their chips and burger, which is what happens. Has anybody else done right this there. any major city besides? Los Angeles tried it, and it didn't work. What is that? What, a challenge and a court or something? What do you mean it didn't work? No, Los Angeles tried it, and then, they, and then they stopped doing it. There was a blanket ban on new standalone restaurants, so it was new ones. And then, uh, this was in 2008, and after seven years, there was a study saying that the ordinance hadn't improved childhood obesity, but it was mostly because they weren't banning the pre-existing ones. Uh. So it was only the new ones, and of course, that was unfair competition. The idea is ban them all, which is what London wants to do. Well, they want to ban them all within a certain proximity to schools, which is where you got to right. hopefully help these uh, kids. I wonder t- if their lunches are any more healthy than our lunches here. What are you talking about? Great oh, you've been in schools? Yeah, because you've been trying to make them more healthy. Well, but they've then- had Jamie Oliver starting national campaigns to try to improve school lunch. It was there that a mother uh, was, who was a publicity hound slipped her child fish and chips like through an anchor chain fence <laughs> at recess and got herself filmed because she was so angry that Jamie Oliver was making them eat healthy food in the school. And so this was cited, and you can imagine what the current president would do with this, with parents who were revolting and saying, no, we want our kids to have food because that's the United Kingdom way, that's the American way. Can I also give a big endorsement to this uh, Mayor Khan's proposal here? Because as a formerly fat kid, I think I'm the only one who can speak on this particular panel. Oh, that's right. I forgot about you. Uh, uh, To this issue, I ate what was closest. And while I would prefer not to have healthy food when I was a kid, if healthy-ish food was uh, closer than unhealthy food, I would tolerate the healthier alternative because I didn't want to. I, I wanted proximity. I wanted convenience. So I think this thing could have huge impact. Well, I think it still it's great. applies because schedules allow kids only, only so, so much, much time, time right. before they get out and then they get docked. Great. Okay, let's talk about uh, salt and uh, blood pressure. I guess we're, well, we knew this, right? That we're not supposed to have very much salt and, and that that helps lower blood pressure. But as this well story's as better, saying that essentially it's as effective, if not more, reducing salt intake, sodium intake, is as effective, if not more, than blood pressure medicine. Once again, Medford's own uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg was on to something with those little salt shakers on the menus. Oh, it, Bloomberg was on to a lot with sodium. So sodium has been vilified. The idea that you should reduce sodium and it will reduce your chances of having a heart attack has been decried as fake science by salt lovers. So this is unfortunately been one of the areas of attack among uh, people who don't like nutrition and food police. But so that's the background of this study that was reported in the Post. It's from the Journal of the American Car- College of Cardiology. It's very straight-faced, but it's not saying there's a storm of controversy behind this. And the controversy is people who say you can really have as much s- sodium as you like, whereas anybody in the nutrition community will say the single greatest thing you can do to improve public health is Im- decrease the amount of sodium in the diet. So this was a study that found like a linear relationship between reduce sodium, reduce blood pressure, which means you're at much less risk of heart attack and stroke. Is, it, is the primary use of salt uh, uh, preservation or taste in America's diet in 2017? I'm glad you asked that, Oh, because you don't know the answer? I, I know some of the answer. Okay, what is the answer? Which is a tremendous amount of the salt in our diets is used as a preservative. It's not used for flavor, and we're completely unaware of it. For example, what is the single greatest contributor of salt in the diet? 
Bread. Bread. I know. That is yeah. amazing. Yeah, and, and it's entirely to improve shelf life. So when I did a piece last year for the Times Magazine about what food industry is doing to improve health, didn't focus on sugar, didn't focus on fat. I focused on sodium because the people I trust in the public health community say this is the single most important thing you can do. And it really is silent because you don't know that it's in your food. Can okay, I count? Oh, but, I'm sorry. One, but one thing because oh, here she I, goes. I do like salt. I don't like salt shakers on no, the menu. No, no, no. That's York what I was going to say. I like sauce on certain things, like like meat, which especially I don't when eat it comes that. to dessert. But 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 this Try is horse like radish hold on. Would you let me finish, please? No. This is another. This is another one of these things that some of this has to be hereditary and how much you heavy you are because lots of people like myself do not have high blood pressure and I do eat salt. So you don't. Everybody doesn't have. It's like some pe- people are affected by different things. You know, be so the poster child for the fake news. We like sodium, Kim. Well, not we like sodium, but it doesn't mean that if you don't if you don't have high blood pressure, you have healthy blood pressure, and you use salt, then you're lucky. Maybe. Yes, you are lucky, and I'm going to artfully dodge this by saying one of the encouraging findings in the study was the higher your sodium at the beginning, the more dramatic the results of lowering sodium okay. and lowering your blood pressure. So you'd be even better off if you weren't like Marjorie with the luck of having inherited uh, lower sodium. But that's irresponsible on your part, if I may say so, because you have unbelievable genes. You've never been heavy your whole life. No, but I, don't, don't I, I have bad genes, actually. My poor parents keeled over early, but oh, not from high blood sorry pressure. About that, then. Forget that. <laughs> Not from high blood pressure. One of the things that wasn't mentioned in the study is African-American community has disproportionately high blood pressure. Yeah. And they are among the highest beneficiaries of lowering sodium in their diet. Okay, so I asked you before about whether or not anybody was uh, doing what uh, Mayor Kahn was proposing to do over there in London. Is anybody doing the salt shaker on the menu thing? And by the way, for those who don't know, we've discussed this before, I think including with you. And this was upheld, unlike the soda size ban, which was struck down by a higher court in New York. I believe the salt ban was up, not ban, was the salt notice on menus uh, in New York City. I don't know which restaurants. If the salt, the sodium content is above X, whatever X is. 2,300 milligrams a day, which is the recommended daily allowance. So then they have a little salt shaker on the thing, which is to show you which that says, maybe you better what? go easy. This one entree has as much yeah. salt as you should be having in an entire day. So is anybody else doing this, or is this just New York City? No, and it's not going to be part of the menu labeling law that's supposed to go into effect uh, okay. May something 2018. Because okay. of lobbying from the other side? Partly lobbying from the other side and also partly because the anti-sodium people led by Marjorie Egan (laughs) were very much against this when menu labeling was being discussed. Okay, okay. So um, we read where Snickers is going to invest in, in Kind, this huge maker of snack bars. Why do I care about this? Well, this is a victory of the good guys. So until proved otherwise, both Kind bars, which marketed uh, clear cellophane wrapping that shows you every nut and every piece of fruit in your healthful oat bar um, or chia seeds uh, and Mars Corporation, the country's sixth largest privately well, held they company. Were that big. Wow. They're huge. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Uh, and a lot of their fortune and uh, profits are from pet food, uh, which is a little known fact, wow. but it's a huge part of Mars. Um, and I think we might be talking about pet food later. Might, yeah. they, uh, they both do very good things for nutrition. So uh, Mars has invested 
many hundreds of millions of dollars in mapping the genome of the cacao plant, which is for many reasons endangered, and making it public knowledge, making it open source, so anybody can go and figure out how can I grow cacao better, uh, how can I try to breed cacao better, um, and improve the lot of the people as they do, Mars does, in Africa who are growing it. So there's lots of quiet things that these companies do for good that they don't particularly but talk wait, about. But wait, 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 I, I don't want to rain on your, I was going to say you're nuts, but I probably should, you're, you're giving the nuts and fruits kind of thing, that's what I was going to say. But you know what, I, uh, Chelsea and I were talking earlier this morning, and she printed out nutritional information on, I mean, the whole notion is Mars wants to get healthier. That's why they're buying into the kind thing. Listen to this comparison. Admittedly, a Snickers bar has more calories, 250 to 190. Saturated fat in a Snickers bar, um, pardon me, total fat in a Snickers bar, 12. Total fat in an almond and coconut kind bar, want to guess? 12. Total saturated fat in a Snickers, 4.5 grams. Total saturated fat in a kind bar, 5. So what I want, you everything. To, I want you to disabuse me of this notion. The reason kind has gotten away with this notion that we are a healthier uh, snack bar, I think is more because of the packaging, because there's this literal transparency, where, as you said, you can see into the bar, but they don't appear to be that much healthier than a traditional chocolate bar, which is horrible for you. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I think what you have to look at is the amount of added sugars and the amount of fat that comes from nut fat. And I think Snickers, oh. it's nuts, and Kind, it's nuts. So as long as you're having a lot of your fat from nuts, that's supposed to be the good fat right now, as opposed to different kinds of saturated fat. But would you not agree with me that the, that the packaging was the brilliance oh, with the guy who... Oh, it's not just the packaging. I, it's the marketing of the whole brand, yeah. you know, saying we're good to the people who grow the stuff. Are they? As far as I know, they are. You know, with all these things, Kind has a huge halo. I've met the founder. Everybody who meets Daniel Lubetsky, the founder, is utterly captivated by his really? mission. His book, Do the Kind Thing, was a big bestseller. So he's managed a feat of branding. Mm. So it's really worked so far. And, you know, we'll see. It's still proved otherwise. Okay, Corby Kummer, our food man. There's a great piece in The Guardian, uh, which I love, and we're all supposed to contribute to The Guardian so they can stay in business. Anyway. As long as you're here, that's what the box at the end of every Guardian <laughs> yeah, says. Yeah, I know. As I long as you're that. here, give I, us some money. Well, you could give them a little bit. And you know, I do. It helps them toward their uh, staying afloat because they do great think, journalism. Wait a minute. Just last week I gave you some money. But it doesn't. Well, I know. That's <laughs> the thing they keep asking you, even if you're already given. But in any case. You don't have to, though. That you don't have to. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yes. But you want to support certain things, Jim, and that's, that's, a, that's a good one to support. But anyway, this does not surprise me at all that the restaurant business in general and being a chef in particular is is very bad for your health and, and this story, your mental health. So elaborate on this. What is happening? Why? So is first of all, The Guardian, what, what was interesting about this piece was it was written by a guy named Jay Rayner, and he is many people's poster child. If you want to find a vicious, sardonic, slash-and-burn critic, it is Jay Rayner. So when you are looking for a go-to, and I had my students recently look for um, you know, complete pans and the most vicious restaurant reviews they could find, uh, and Jay Rayner is always at the top of the list, and yet this is a completely straight-faced, look at the stress these guys face, look at the mental illness, look at the self-destructive damage. So... This was started uh, about two years ago. There was a confessional by Rene Redzepi of Noma Restaurant, which in several um, surveys is you know, the world's best restaurant. He's a big spokesperson for chefs, and he wrote something about mental health and chefs. 
and how difficult it was. And it, it unleashed a torrent on his uh, MAD restaurant sites called MAD about chefs and mental health and how challenging it is, how many chefs overcome depression, uh, suffer from depression, and it began this confessional stream. And somehow it petered out, like in the past year. For a while it was a torrent. Daniel Patterson, a very respected chef who comes from here, um, a very a patrician background he tries to hide from right here in Boston, uh, is a, is a three-star chef, Koei restaurant in San Francisco, and he wrote about suffering from depression and how suddenly when he talked about it with other chefs, opens the floodgates. This is a huge problem. Uh, there's a woman named Kat Kinsman who started a fund to help chefs in Brooklyn. I mean, she started the fund in Brooklyn, but it's nationwide. It's a huge problem, depression and chefs, but it's not talked about because it's part of this macho, tough power through. Uh, but in fact, um, access to alcohol is huge, and it's an enormous problem, alcohol abuse. Didn't the story say that 50% plus of these chefs have some drug or alcohol Well, you can issue, see where problem. at the end of the day in restaurants, there is a big tendency to hit the locus, the local bar room or sometimes even a drink at the because place. Because it's there. Working. And yeah. I've been very interested in the, we've talked about sexual harassment stories in kitchens, but yep. a sort of concomitant piece that you often see about this is, in the context of harassment is, access to alcohol is so widespread that that often leads to situations in which chefs harass. But they haven't talked as much about the underlying problems of alcoholism and addiction, which are big in kitchens. And By the yeah. way, it's not enough. just alcohol. It's the macho culture. It's what you've described to us, Anthony Bourdain described to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this super hyper macho culture and the long in a hours. lot of these kitchens, right? Yeah, but what goes with it often is this kind of brash toughness that's very hard to maintain and the punishing hours that require some kind of release. So I don't, you know, there can't be enough of these stories. And I'm glad that Jane, Jay Rayner, who usually, you know, um, specializes in cutting vicious wit, decided to draw attention to this. We're talking to Corby Cummer, our food guy. So, Corby, um, I'm embarrassed to say this story about Venezuela stunned me. I knew they were in trouble down there. I had no idea that it was as bad as it is. 80% so uh, people living in poverty, 800% inflation rate, hyperinflation there. There is a story, whoever wrote this piece, uh, Kirk, Semple, Kirk Semple, had so many great little examples. They, it, it, one of the things they talk about, which really brought it home, the nation is on the ver... Oh, whoops, I got the wrong paragraph here. This is an economy in which even the hourly rate in a parking, parking lot recently lot, yeah. ticked upward in the two hours it took a shopper to run some errands. Then it talks about this 42-year-old hairdresser, David, who, like many Venezuelans, spends a lot of time waiting in line to buy basic goods when they're available. The other day, he woke at 5 a.m. He's got three kids and stood in line for two and a half hours to buy a canister of cooking gas. By the time he got to the front of the line, the supply had run out. So there are gross food, food shortages, hyperinflation. Yeah. This is a pr Consumer this prices forecast to soar more than 2,300% in the next year. So I, I tweeted this, which of course is the reason you saw it. Because it I is, of course. Well, actually, a friend of mine showed Twitter it to stream. me before they. No, no, it was my tweet. She oh, so found it through my tweet. That's where it um, And I said, this is not Berlin in the 1920s when people had wheelbarrows of money mm. uh, and they tried to run to the store before the process prices rose, which happened here. It's not Zimbabwe under the worst of Mugabe, who did the same thing. 
hyperinflation. This is happening right now kind of under our noses. And uh, the student I was just teaching at Tufts, she's just become engaged with Venezuelan, and she said, oh, that hairdresser went to the same school my fiancé did, and it's even worse than this story says. But the fact that the story was so well reported and has specific examples that bring it right home is the power of journalism. And, and, yeah, the power of journalism to, and then finish the sentence, cause us to say how horrible this is and do absolutely nothing. Is that... Is that Well, to remember the neediest, as the yeah. Times says every December, to try to think about... You know, I, I sent this story around because I was so affected by this story, and, and uh, one of my friends said, okay, look at it in Boston. You, you want to go... You can go around the corner and you can find yeah. this story in Boston. It just happens that this was so well done. But the idea well, the difference is this is every corner. I mean, this is practically when you have eighty when your poverty rate is eighty percent, you don't have to look around the corner. You have to look about. It also brings up the larger point, which is that famines are always a factor of government misdistribution. They are not effect. Uh, they are not a factor of there's been a drought. Or some kind of act of God. Famines are always a problem with government. And the mismanagement in Venezuela and its oil, it's entirely uh, the evils of government that have led to this hyperinflation and, and, uh, and hunger. Well, let me just say one last thing about this. The only uh, person, other than you, Corby Comer, who put attention uh, on this uh, because of your brilliant tweet that uh, everybody saw. <laughs> Captivated the nation. You also talked about Venezuela, I'm sure for the wrong reasons, and was talking about imposing sanctions on Venezuela not too long ago. Anybody in your Washington? Your favorite president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, was talking about because this. Because of yeah. this? I don't, I don't think his, it was a humanitarian kind of uh, motivation, but I have to say he put, for a brief period of time, more attention on Venezuela in general than the gnat-like attention spans of most Americans can uh, handle. So the question is, will this Kirk Sample piece engender any action? And I hope it does. We're talking to Corby Cummer, so, our food guy. This is a very unfortunate segue. Talking I'm so about glad you're people. doing it instead of me. <laughs> it's a tough <laughs> segue. Take it away, nothing Marguerite. to eat but a cupful of rice in Venezuela, and then we segue to uh, the ultimate in eating for dogs and cats. Explain what's going on here, please, Corby Kummer. Oh, so pet food trends mirror human food. food trends because people uh, ascribe human qualities to their cats and dogs. Yes, we do. So they want them to have just what they're having because if what's you know if it's good enough for them, it's certainly good enough for Fido. Though, when have you met a dog named Fido? <laughs> um, and so this is something that the Mars Company and other everybody takes notes of this. So now. There's gluten-free pet food. I mean, there really is. There's low-carb pet food, uh, low-saturated fat. Um, it always cell follows human... cultured Well, so now there's going to be cell-cultured What does that meat. mean? So cell-cultured, as I have written about recently in The Atlantic and Neolife, a new website started by MIT people, um, sure there's now cell-cultured fish. So there's going to be cell-cultured fish. Mm-hmm. There's, cell-cultured, fish. there's cell-cultured meat. Two companies, uh, Memphis Meats and Modern Meadow, which sounds so Orwellian. They all have M names, <laughs> are trying to... You take a couple of cells of a recently died animal. You didn't even have to kill it. It could have just expired in the uh, zoo or the aquarium. And you try to replicate it in a test tube and try to 
build it out so that, you know, the way they're trying to grow transplant organs, they are trying to grow meat. Um, and what was not stated in this otherwise very good piece in Quartz about pet food is one of the reasons it's going to show up first in pet food is it has no texture and no taste. Oh. All it's got is the protein and the heme iron and the things that are good nutritionally about meat. And so it's easy to stuff into pet food because they don't need the bone or they don't need the requirement. Or you can just grind Wait a second. up Didn't dead bones. did you tell us a couple of months ago in a segment that they were trying to do the exact same thing, create, uh, creating meat in a test tube for human beings? Absolutely. Which obviously would have to have taste. Right, but it's, it, you're only seeing it now in burgers and things that don't require any texture but try, because trying to mimic the striation of muscles, trying I to see, mimic okay. the bone and fat and cartilage mm. structure is this huge problem. But just growing out a couple of, uh, and that's one of the reasons yeah, that fish growing? fillets are going to be easier because they've got like no texture. When they, when they take the cells from the dead animal, what are they growing? Are they growing... They're growing those cells. They put them in a medium that's a warm bath of nutrients. Yeah, so it's like a blob. And often they put it on something that looks in diagrams like a Lego set, a structure in which they try to mimic the structure of, say, a drumstick. That's about as far as they've gotten. You know, they're not going to get as far as a breast or something that's really complicated. Uh, Because (laughs) here's one of the charming facts. If... Every cell doesn't have easy access to this bath of nutrients. It will become gangrenous. Perfect. Oh, God. <laughs> well, you just cut that portion off and you eat the rest. Yeah, okay. that's right. And put it to your pet food. Thank you. On that note, okay, Corby, Corby Cummer, pleasure as always. Thank you very Thank you. much, Corby you. Cummer. Corby is an award-winning food writer, restaurant critic, senior editor at The Atlantic, and columnist for The New Republic. He's also a BPR contributor. Corby, thank you. Corby, thank you very much, as always, for coming in. See you, Corby. Coming up. Opening up the lines and asking you, like if you, like Jim Brady, would prefer to have a chatbot therapist. I'll speak for myself, thank you. Chatbot, that is. That is exactly to right. To a real human psychiatrist with a couch and a wall full of diplomas and experience. Why would you want that? So that you can really tell the chatbot what you wouldn't tell your therapist. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. A 2014 poll, I think it was, found that shoppers preferred cashiers to the self-checkout. A 2013 poll found that people preferred a real bank teller to an ATM. So does this not bode well for the Wobot? A Wobot (laughs) is a therapist that doesn't have a couch, a box of tissues, or a wall decorated with diplomas because it's nothing more than an online chatbot. You might like having a human bag up your groceries, but do you want a human to unpack your baggage? The number is 877-301-8970. Does the idea of a robot therapist appeal to you? It's cheap, it's 24-7, and most importantly, it does not 
judge. 877-301-8970. By the way, if you think it's one of these crackpot ideas, as we just mentioned a half hour, 20 minutes ago, Dart Kaplan, apparently, is it since June, Marjorie, 2 million people have used this service. I think it's since June. I may be off by a few months, but I think that's the yeah, gist of it. It's, it's gaining v- fast in popularity. It's $39 a month, mm-hmm. a month after your first two-week free trial. And in light of the fact, you know, Chelsea mentioned this to us this morning when we were talking about this. For those of us who shall remain unnamed, who have seen a shrink from time to time in our existence, it is amazing that you pay to go see the shrink to unload your problems, and then you lie to your shrink because <laughs> you're so embarrassed. <laughs> about your problems. I may have had that issue myself once or twice. And for those who are scoffing at this, which is what I did until I actually read this, was it the Washington Post? The story, yeah, in the Washington Post in the health section, the average user, at least the average user with whom Amy Ellis Nutt, who wrote this Mm -hmm. piece, uh, communicated, had incredibly positive feedback about how useful the experience was. And I think it's in part because of the non-judgment thing, because you can say whatever the hell you want. It's a machine. And by the way, it's not just like programmed in a way like Art was talking about where it just says yes or no. It apparently has, its functionality is such that it can almost communicate with you in normal human-to-human kind of Yeah, they have a sample conversation. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, Who else in your family takes care of you? Answer, my father. Mm -hmm. Your father. You are like my father in some ways. Mm -hmm. Oh, what resemblance do you see? You are not very aggressive, but I think you don't want me to notice that. Mm-hmm. What makes you think I'm not very aggressive? You don't argue with me. And it goes on and on and on. And the people I had that exact same conversation for $180, by the way. <laughs> That's right. Not too long and ago. You, and you didn't want to tell them that your father was in jail. And I he was not in jail. He was just barred. That. He was not in jail. And the other thing is, I think people like the idea that it checks, the robot checks in with them on, on a regular basis. And they find that right, It's very, programmed to check back yes, with you. Yes, to check back with you. And I think that you can get your, uh, your uh, fix fast as opposed to having to make an appointment with a therapist for two weeks from now when maybe you won't feel as, as down the dumps as you do at the moment that you feel like you need your therapist. So it's the instant gratification thing, too. And by right? the way, a lot of health care, uh, health insurance does not cover, at least doesn't cover adequately oh, no. uh, uh, mental health uh, uh, treatment. And a lot of shrinks these days won't even take a lot of insurance. So maybe it's not your first choice, but for 39 bucks a month, it apparently yep. is an adequate second choice for a stunning number. Two million people, according to this, since, did I, what did I say, since June or something? That was what it was? Yeah, since June. Yeah. It la- I'm sorry. It launched in June. It engages in more than, oh, no, it's much more than this. It engages in more than two million conversations a week. They say two million a week. So millions of Americans, millions of Americans are dealing with their mental health issues by talking to a robot. A robot. You know, I was down at the, uh, I told you, the Hub Week when they had all those uh, robots. Other robots running around, yeah. And some of these robots are, uh, are, are really amazing. And you're having conversations with the robots. Mm-hmm. And I went to this thing at the, at the New York City Marathon where they had this little robot doing a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And you could talk to the robot. And the robot moves its head and it changes the intonation of its voice. Mm-hmm. And so you get really easily... Um, you know, fooled into thinking that there's something in there besides this. It's, it's like R2-D2 in those years ago in those great uh, Star Wars movies. You know what I mean? Remember one of our producers Three said CPO? the first time he went to an ATM with his girlfriend, his girlfriend thought there was a human standing <laughs> behind there when they... So, I mean, every, you know, everybody... Whatever. Let's go to Bob in uh, uh, Worcester. Uh, uh, you are first on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about Wobots, as we call them. It's W-O-E-B-O-T. Hey there, Bob. Well, I think it's probably a good idea. 
I get my therapy from listening to you guys. So, uh, oh. And the responses are, are perfectly adequate. You know, if you listen long enough, you know, Jim will say something that makes me feel better because I know I'm not that dumb. So. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I'm performing a service, Bob. That's why I'm go. here. There you go. So, Bob, would you ever? I got, I got you that that uh, fee business with the with the fierce steers. The surgeon's fee was two hundred bucks. The medical facility fee was eighteen hundred. The hospital eventually dropped it because of an NPR healthcare. Uh, reporter who was looking into it. Well, it's good to hear. So it worked out for the lady. Well, it worked out, but they shouldn't have been charged $1,877 for something you get free with a $5 pair of earrings at the mall. But, Bob, thanks for your uh, praise, I guess. Bob, yeah. thank you for the call. Stephen emails, and he's um, on not just the robot, but the ATM mm-hmm. uh, that, you, that you said before. Sure. And he says you shouldn't you know, deride the ATM What's and that? the human behind the ATM because Stephen says I had an actual major breakthrough talking to the ATM just this morning. I'm sure. So there you go. It can happen kind of thing. You know, thing. by the way, does that not, you know, there are certain things, I, I, you and I, I think it's fair to say, are not experts on artificial intelligence. Are you Would you kidding? agree that's Absolutely the case? Absolutely not. But are you not surprised almost every day when you read a story about AI, about how many more things, like if, before you read the story tomorrow, this morning, if I had said to you there's a robotic uh, uh, alternative, far cheaper and apparently relatively useful for people who need therapy, you would have said that's not possible, wouldn't you have said that? I, I would find it very surprising. Two million conversations a week in this see, country. Did you see that? You saw that movie, Her. Oh, of course. Where the guy fell in love with the operating system. What's the name system. of the guy who did that? I forget. The operating system on his computer he fell in love with. And uh, Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. Thank, Thank you, John you very Parker. much, John Parker, who knows yeah. everything, our engineer, John Parker. And, and, and Joaquin Phoenix goes away to this cabin in the woods Scarlett for the Johansson. weekend with the operating, operating system. system yeah. And He's talking to her at the end of the day. He's talking to her in the morning. She's listening to his problems. I mean, it's it's like a, it's it's kind of like a talking dog in a way that can relate to your difficulties and listens to you. Well, there are also if you read certain websites, which I don't go to, but others do. Some people are using inflatables for other purposes <laughs> that that you really? wouldn't think that I have not done oh, that. Oh, what do they use them for? Jim? I wouldn't. You have to talk to a friend of mine. Who's, <laughs> so, Long, distant friend of mine. Let's go to uh, Dan and Worcester. You're next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about Wobots, which are robotic uh, therapists, essentially. Would you use them? Hi, Dan. Hi, guys. How you doing? Excellent. What's going on? Great. Just of all the things we could be talking about, I call in on this subject. Yeah, it says but, something. Uh, yeah, it does. It was a very slow afternoon. <laughs> but, you know, I was thinking that if we... Design this robot to look like Nancy Pelosi. No, that's not those, nice. She has kind of those robotic eyes on her, and, and she's always trying to tell people how to live their lives. So I think that you know that probably would be a good uh, a good matchup for this thing. Well, we have a Democratic congressman on tomorrow, Richie Neal. We'll pass it on, Dan. I'm sure he'll be very receptive to the idea. Thank you. Well, some of the for your call. Democratic congressmen have been trying to get rid of Nancy Pelosi as the uh, leader of the Democrats, and uh, Seth Moulton is among them. Seth Moulton. Well, I wouldn't say he wouldn't say get rid of her. He voted for the guy. What was his name Ron? From well, he Ohio. didn't want her to be. He did didn't want, want her to be, be the head of the. Of, yeah, he didn't want her to be speaker anymore. No. I think that he's not alone in that sentiment. Elizabeth from Rhode Island. What do you think? The hey robot there. could solve your problems. Welcome. Um, Hi. So here's the deal. I agree. I'm so glad that this is a subject people need to seek mental health counseling. I get it. I love it. But on a personal level, mm-hmm. man, the validation I get from another human being is. So amazing. Maybe I'm just vain, but for somebody to tell me, oh my gosh, you were right, that person was so wrong, 
man, that's a that's good. Yeah, but on a serious note, I agree with you as someone who more than once has seen a therapist in my life. Maybe that doesn't happen to you, Jen. But Maybe there's the no validation. Say, there's not the validation. <laughs> but there. you know, on a serious note here, while this idea seems preposterous in some ways, it's thirty nine dollars a month, and I'll tell you. Uh, we get email all the time, not that I didn't know this from reading the papers or real life. There, it is almost impossible to find therapists these days who have slots in their, in their schedules, or if they have slots in their schedules, Elizabeth, are willing to take in, uh, your insurance in such a way that it doesn't break the bank. So, you and, know, for those people, this is a big sense. deal. What's that? And that's why it makes sense. I totally agree with you in that respect. And I feel fortunate that I'm that I can have I have a regular therapist, mm-hmm. and I feel lucky and fortunate that my insurance um, covers part of that. But yes, on a whole scale, I think this is great. People need to seek mental health wherever they can get it. Um, and if it's a computer, eh, all right, whatever. I'm exactly where you are. Actually, it's not my first choice, but I am fine. And by the way, just saying the words. Even if you you appreciate that it's just a machine, having the words cross your that in and of itself is often cathartic. So I think there are a lot of pluses here. Elizabeth, thanks for a great call. Barbara just emails and says, I think the same thing can be accomplished by talking to any stranger that you don't anticipate meeting again. Barbara works part-time. She's often assigned to self-service, where oddly, she says, more people talk to me about holiday decorations, their dying parents, care of their demented mother, etc. And that's sort of the phenomenon of people that go to the barbershop, even though you tend to go to the same barbershop. Bartenders, Uber drivers. hairdressers. Yes, exactly. I mean, how many times do you go to the hairdresser and hear these incredibly intimate conversations going on with, between, the, between the stylist and the person that's sitting next to you in the chair. Mm. You know, you, f- you do find out about the lives of your hairdresser it's all the time. That's the reason I go. Yeah. It's, well, no, it's what my <laughs> but place But if it's the same real- hairdresser, th- then it's not a stranger, so you have a different relationship, obviously, with the person you go see all the time. But you do hear these conversations, don't you? Yes, you do. 877-301-897. Yeah. Has, has your barber gotten, gotten you through many difficult moments He's in actually life, a good Jim? friend of mine. I've been known him for decades. Oh, okay. It's Alfred, I've told you. Oh, Alfred, Alfred, that's right. Alfred is one of my best buddies. Yeah. He's the sweetest, So you can't guy. be totally honest with Alfred, because then he wouldn't hang around with you anymore. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go to Russell. That is exactly right. By <laughs> the way, for people who have not been to a therapist, it may sound ridiculous what we were talking about yep. at the beginning. You'd say to yourself, well, why would you go and spend 200 bucks an hour or whatever it is if you don't intend to be fully honest? It's really hard when you have embarrassing things. Like when you went to confession when you were a little kid oh and doing God. things you shouldn't have been doing. Yeah. I assume you were going weekly. Uh, well, Did you, not weekly. Well, but you should have been going weekly. Right. Okay. Did you ever tell the priest the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Um, well, often not. It's certainly not to a priest that you knew. If you had something really bad, exactly. it's you the wanted same to go thing. to a place like St. Anthony's Shrine because they're, they're doing like, you know, assembly line confessions down there and they hear so much bad stuff, you could just kind of slip in the but cracks. But it's, it's the same concept. Yes, it's the same concept. And I, I can, you know, I was just thinking in terms of sex harassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these guys must have known they had a little bit of a problem or that maybe they were misbehaving. And you mean it, the perpetrators? Yes. Yeah, I mean, what it, I, not all of them. Not a lot of them, I'm sure, didn't care. They thought they could get away with that. But those who did, are you going to go to your therapist? Like if you're Louis C.K. Now, maybe if you're Louis C.K. because you're so out there. 
but tell them that but that's the whole point of a therapist. And the I mean, I it's the whole point is to is to to strip yourself naked, not literally, but uh, uh, so well, <laughs> that's a whole other issue. That's a whole no, I'm other serious. Issue, yeah. So that I mean, that's the only way you get unburdened with these things. Was but Tony it is really Soprano hard to do. Honest with his therapist. Were they some of the greatest scenes they in the were history of scenes, television? But was he totally honest with her? I don't remember. I think he was pretty honest with her. Yeah. He was pretty honest. Well, let's take a few more calls. Let's go to Seaconk, where Jane is on the phone. Jane, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'm a retired psychiatric nurse practitioner. Great. We're so glad you called. What do you think? Well, I'll be very honest with you. For people who have less than acute and critical problems, I think that uh, this is a a gateway for them to uh, get their... um, their problems taken care of. However, there are so many people who want to unburden themselves of very serious issues. Right now, the biggest issue in the United States is depression, and depression with Mm. irritability, with uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, that this is not an appropriate venue for them to uh, unburden themselves for the simple reason that when I had a patient, my last job was in uh, El Paso, Texas, and I was with the, with the VA. When people want to unburden themselves of something very serious, then it's important to have uh, the body language, the eye contact. I could tell when somebody was fibbing to me. It, you know, it didn't take a genius. And the therapeutic relationship of knowing that your caregiver yeah. cares about you yeah. is very important. But, Jane, let me and just interrupt so and say some of the comments that... that, that, that the Wobot users uh, made was that they thought the Wobot cared about them because it followed up with them about medication, about how they were. You, you know what I mean? And I'm not suggesting, you're right, of course, for the most acute psychological problems, hopefully you're not using the machine. But, but you can appreciate that if you're checked in with, it, I'm assuming particularly with older people, with lonely older people, it's a big asset, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, if it checks back with you, I know nothing about the details of that program. But well, we don't know if much it either. Back with you, yeah, if there's a human um, a therapist who can validate yeah. that this person needs uh, um, a referral to three, two or three uh, therapists in their area, then social workers are usually the first persons to, um, to offer counseling. Yeah. And an evaluation by a psychiatric person for a diagnosis to see if there's something even bigger going on is really mandatory. Hey, Jane, that was great. Thank you so much for uh, bringing some expertise into the discussion. You know what part of the problem is, Marjorie? What? Almost every time you go to the shrink and the shrink would say, you did? I mean, that is not helpful. It's just, you know, you sort of don't feel... You know what I would say in those circumstances? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. Get get me a Wobot. No, I'm serious. No, but that is how you feel they were yeah. going to react, even though they never do. Christian in Hampton Falls. Hi, Christian. Hi, Christian. Hi. Uh, I wanted to speak uh, a funny point to what you were saying earlier. Is When people want to pay somebody money and then they lie to a therapist, it's mm-hmm. kind of like somebody hiring a, a cleaning person and then uh, freaking out. Say, I have to clean up for the cleaning person that's coming. Yeah. Who doesn't oh, do that? To... <laughs> Who doesn't clean up for Everybody... the cleaning person? Everybody, right? <laughs> But then if nobody's coming to clean up, then they end up not even cleaning anything at all. <laughs> that's exactly, that's <laughs> a great analogy, actually, Christian. So what does that say? What's the deeper meaning in, in that analogy? Well, I think people need something 
or somebody to sort of either look after them or to look up to or to talk to. So I think technology maybe will be able to fill that, but I don't know if it'll be – I bet there'll be studies in coming years doing maybe brain scans or something. Um, like I know there's the part of the brain, I think it's the cerebral cortex, something that's the part that uh, activates when you're talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. I bet that'll uh, it'll activate some of the same things, but maybe we'll find out that it's not. Uh, it doesn't have all of the same benefits. Very thoughtful call, Christian. Thank you for checking in with us. You know, Jeff just points out the downside of getting too attached to your robot. What's that? Your robot, whatever it is. Robot, robot. He says it's important to point out that at the end of the movie, her, uh, the girlfriend Samantha, that's she's the operating system, the yeah. computer leaves Joaquin Phoenix yeah. for a better guy. Yeah. So much for non-judgmental. I didn't see I saw it on a plane. I didn't see the end. Is Imagine that what happens? Imagine if your Wobot is that what says, leaves you? see you later, I have a better, yeah, that better would be class clientele. Be We're all done. Okay. By the way, people are emailing, it's Wobot, W-O-E, as in Wo. That's right. Uh, Wo is me. Wobot is uh, the name of this particular uh, service that we're doing free advertising for. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk with John Rosenthal, co-founder of Stop Handgun Violence. He's using the tactics of the anti-tobacco movement to bring about gun reform. John Rosenthal is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan and I live. I'm Jim Browdy, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Last week, incredibly, the House Judiciary Committee voted 19 to 11 for a bill that would allow concealed carry permit holders from one state to legally carry their guns to any other state. This is the first gun-related legislation since 58 people were murdered in Las Vegas. It's called the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act of 2017. We've actually discussed it with uh, Commissioner Evans. Legislation the NRA describes as its highest legislative priority. Well, this week, Stop Handgun Violence is launching a campaign of their own using graphic images from the Las Vegas shooting to urge Trump and Congress to wipe the blood off their hands by mandating background checks and renewing the federal assault weapons ban. John Rosenthal, of course, is the co-founder of Stop Handgun Violence and the man behind it all. John, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So there was a flurry of hope after the terrible massacre in Las Vegas that we were going to do something. There's a flurry of brief hope after a lot of these mass shootings, but we talked about um, bump stocks and maybe even doing something with background checks. And once again, as Jim said, Nothing's happened. Massachusetts is the only state that acted since Las Vegas, and we banned bump stocks. First state in the country, right? Correct. Mm. And after Sandy Hook, when I was back here uh, with you all, um, which is, by the way, over 150,000 dead people ago, uh, just in five years from gun violence, uh, Congress did nothing when 20 babies, uh, first graders, were massacred. except for promote this concealed carry reciprocity law, which, make no mistake about it, this is about undermining state gun laws in order to increase gun violence, increase fear, and increase gun sales. So Massachusetts is an urban industrial state. We have arguably the most effective gun laws in the nation. We've reduced the rate of gun deaths by 60% since 1994, when we started the billboard campaign, and I'm a gun owner, as you know. 
Uh, and we have the lowest firearm fatality rate in the nation. We have proven the NRA's worst nightmare. Gun laws save lives. The problem is that as you, as you reduce gun deaths, you reduce fear. And as you reduce fear, you reduce gun sales. And now in particular, which is the sort of the truth is stranger than fiction aspect of all this, because Trump is president and is in bed with the NRA, there's no fear of Democrats taking your guns away anymore, and gun sales have plummeted. How do you increase gun sales? You increase gun violence and increase fear. So the two things that they have, the NRA and Trump are doing, and they have very willing partners in Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, the two pieces of legislation, one of them was coming up the day of the Las Vegas massacre. Was that the silencer one? Yes. Or was it, yeah. The silencer was, one. Yeah, tell people uh, about that. So Donald Trump Jr. is heavily invested in the silencer business. I didn't know that. Yes, as an investor. And in the 30s, when, when machine guns were banned, silencers were banned because it helped, you know, silencers helped criminals get away with murder without detection. Mm -hmm. So they've been banned since the 30s. No one ever, you know, thought about deregulating or reducing or eliminating the ban on machine guns or silencers until Trump came into office. You can no longer sue the gun industry thanks to George W. Bush. So now the NRA is going for broke. They are doubling down. They gave 30 million bucks to Trump. They own him. They have a seat at the table at the White House. And their priorities were silencers in order to make it easier to get away with murder without detection. And that bill was coming up the day of Las Vegas. And imagine if the Las Vegas shooter had a silencer. Imagine. I mean, people are alive today because they heard the shots fired. They heard where the shooter was firing from. So law enforcement is able to sort of solve crimes because people hear shots, and, they, and we have a shot spotter here in Boston. So if a shots are fired, police go to that scene. So, and then the concealed carry reciprocity. Well, stay on silencer for a second. I could make an argument for the NRA. It's not one I believe in defense of much of what's on their agenda. When that silencer thing came up, I don't know if we discussed this on the air or not. I couldn't come up with one. And you came up with a minute because they want people to be able to murder and not be detected. I mean, what's their... What's their public argument as to why that the Second Amendment is pure? Is that what? What is it? They're calling it the Sportsman Hearing Protection Act. So oh it doesn't damage God. their eardrums when they're killing Correct. an animal. Is that what they really say? Yes. Okay. And I shoot. I've hunted. I don't know anybody who's a legitimate gun owner that doesn't wear ear protection. Mm -hmm. So it's all about, you know, they, they call it one thing, but the, what they really mean is unrestricted access to guns and make it easier to people, for people to kill each other without law enforcement knowing it. And they were embarrassed out of proceeding with that on that particular date because the timing was bad for them. Okay, then the concealed carry thing, which passed this. Uh, did I get right with the Judiciary or Rules Committee or Came some committee. Committee. committee? So uh, uh, the rationale, that, well, before the rationale, explain better than I did. If you're from a state that has very low threshold of, uh, of what you need to get a permit for a concealed carry, you can bring a concealed weapon into a place like Massachusetts where the threshold, I assume, is quite high 
and you can't be stopped by it's like a anybody. Is that license. correct? That's what I read. It's like you, you get you get your license in right. Texas, that's a good enough. and your driver's license is good in all fifty states. So that's my understanding. You get your uh, you get your concealed carry permit in Texas, and you can show up at your kid's soccer game if your grandpa next weekend in wherever town you live in with a gun. So is that a, that's a good analogy? Is it, it is. not? So Jared Lofner, who shot Gabby Giffords, right. and forever changed her life and killed six other people at a district office went to a Walmart, had a background check run because only federally licensed gun dealers in America have to run a background check. So he had a prohibition from his military record, which is interesting, but it wasn't in the database. He got a handgun. Now he's legal. He, he then could take it to Massachusetts, where we require background checks for all gun sales, training, licensing, renewable licensing, um, registration, and police chiefs have discretion not to issue licenses. So we are the safest state in the nation because we have the most effective gun laws. I'm a gun owner. I can pass a background check. But the NRA doesn't like gun laws because they reduce gun sales. They reduce gun deaths. Okay, so let's follow, though, uh, John Rosenthal from Stop Handgun Violence. Marjorie's example. Uh, if I uh, 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 get a driver's license in Kansas... I can drive in Massachusetts. If I get married in Kansas, I am married in Massachusetts. If I am allowed to carry a concealed weapon in Kansas, why shouldn't I be able to do the exact same thing in Massachusetts just like I can drive and be married? Well, first of all, driver's licenses are not all created equally either. We happen to have renewable car licensing every six years like we have renewable gun licensing. In Kentucky, your car license is good for your whole life. Uh -huh. So, you know, states have the ability to regulate car licenses, and they certainly, according to the Supreme Court, Scalia wrote for the majority that you can't ban guns in the common use of the time of the founders, and he specifically said, I don't mean AR-15s or sawed-off right. shotguns. They weren't around, but you can put reasonable restrictions on how they are sold. Is that the D.C. case of a That was the D.C. Okay. Heller case. Heller case, okay. Tell us, um, you just handed me an invitation, and I opened it up, and I saw uh, dead people lying on the ground with blood on them from Las Vegas. Tell me what you're doing, John Rosenthal. Well, after Sandy Hook, um, I wanted to find the photographs of the 21st graders uh, who each received 11, uh, 3 to 11 rounds with an AR-15 military-style assault weapon. The round is it's called the 223 round. It is designed for stopping power, not to penetrate and go through you, but to create maximum soft tissue damage. Those 6- and 7-year-olds received 3 to 11 rounds. The entry wound is about a half-inch in diameter. One exit wound is about a foot. And parents of those children told me that they had to identify their babies by their clothing. So think about Las Vegas. 58 people massacred and killed, and they were the lucky ones. 550 wounded forever with these gaping holes. If you look at those pictures closely, Marjorie, you will see bodies without heads. You will see bodies without arms, from a military round that is perfectly legal to purchase in 33 states, along with the AR-15 assault rifle, at 5,000 gun shows every single day of the year without an ID or a background check, 
thanks to the NRA and their spineless members of Congress who, will, who prioritize blood money campaign contributions, over 100 American lives a day lost to gun violence, a mass shooting of four or more people every single day in this country, and now we're seeing these high-profile mass shootings every week or two. So you're sending this to uh, uh, what I believe I read in the Globe yesterday was uh, not only the president, but members of Congress who always vote with the NRA, inviting them to have an opportunity to get the blood off their hands, to give them two options in their RSVP. One is to vote the right way on assault weapons and background checks, and one is to continue the carnage. I have to say I am totally with you, even though the pictures are appalling in terms of the methods, because my sense is we sanitize everything. We sanitize deaths of our children and siblings and parents in war and public execu- you know, and executions by the state and obviously a gun deaths like this. But what do you say to people who say this is too- – I'm with you on the issue, John Rosenthal. I'm with you on background checks like 90 percent of America is and 70-some percent of the NRA is, but this is not – Okay, it is not okay. You you dishonor the lives of those 58 people by showing them in these horrible settings. It's horrible for their family. It's too graphic, John Rosenthal. I would say it's only a picture. What about reality? What about the families that how I had to identify their six- and seven-year-olds at Sandy Hook with the same weapon 150,000 gun deaths ago, and it happened on October 1st in Las Vegas, and then in Texas, and the list goes on and on. What's shocking is that elected officials who are supposed to be in Washington to protect the public health and safety have chosen... Millions of dollars. And, and in many cases, it's only you know, tens of thousands or $100,000 buys a member of Congress to vote to make military-style weapons and easily concealed handguns unregulated. You know, you go down the store across the street and you can get a toy gun. That toy gun has a red dot at the end of the barrel. That is a federal regulation. That toy gun company cannot sell that gun unless it has a red dot at the end of the that. barrel. The firearm that did that mayhem in those pictures. I mean, Marjorie, one of those pictures are two beautiful teenage girls with blood all over them. They're dead girls, thanks to Congress. And I've hunted. When I hunt, i got to get a license. And the NRA has no problem with the fact that you got to get a hunting license. And when you get a hunting license to hunt deer, you are limited to five rounds and to hunt duck you're limited to three rounds to protect the duck and deer population. But when you want to hunt people, like Las Vegas, San Bernardino, you, the list goes on and on and on, no limit on the number of rounds, even though police carry 13 to 17 rounds before they have to reload, Congress says, mentally ill veteran with an AR-15, go for it, 100-round magazine. What I wondered, John, and maybe this is already happening and I just don't know, but I know there's a Mothers Against uh, Handgun, um, Against Gun Violence as a group, but you know, I remember Mothers Against dr- Drunk Driving. When, you know, when I was young, 20, 30 years ago, uh, people drove drunk and it was like a joke. You know, you make a joke about how you basically, you're reeling around, you basically made it home last night. Now people think of drunk drivers as bad people. You are 
you are a really bad person. They change the culture. They change the culture. And if there's a way to change the culture so that people, and we get them, they email me, uh, you know, all the time in these discussions that say, well, you know, uh, I want to be able to go to the gun range and I want to be able to have these guns because it's fun. And I belong to the NRA. Is, is, can we make those people, and if, I'm sorry if you don't like this, but into bad people? Because what they're saying is my fun at the, at the range or my freedom, that matters more than my life, liberty, and happiness because I think most Americans are nervous now when they go to, the thought crosses your mind when you go to the mall, when you go to Fenway Park, when you go to Gillette Stadium, when you go any place where there's a crowd of people, is some lunatic going to come in here? You're, you've lost your ease and a little bit of your enjoyment. Think about this. What a false choice. So I'm a gun owner. Nobody's saying, you know, ban guns. Nobody's saying I'm ban just saying guns. I'm a law-abiding gun owner, so I can go to a gun store. I am happy to go to a gun store because they have to run a background check. I resent the fact that Timothy McVeigh, you know, the, the, the biggest domestic terrorist we know from the Oklahoma bombing, um, was an NRA member who blew up that building, killed 168 people because of the ATF regulating guns and the FBI being in that building. The NRA is not a gun rights organization. It's a cultural organization designed to, I mean, and Trump plays right into it, to create a cultural war. I mean, 90% of Americans support background checks. 70% of NRA members support background checks. A majority of... But they're of still members. They're still members the, of the NRA. Maybe no, they should get stop this. being I mean, members. Think about this. There are 80 million gun owners in this country. Mm -hmm. There's 4 million members of the NRA. The majority of, of American gun owners don't subscribe to the extremism of the NRA. And those 4 million members can't even vote for their board of directors. And let me tell you a little bit about their board of directors. Um, Robert President Palmer, he, he owns Soldier of Fortune. So that's the mercenary magazine. Um, this guy, Jeff Cooper, was quoted as saying... Four out of five people who die in the inner city from gun violence are no loss to society. We should keep them better armed. Oh, God. Another board member, Ted Nugent, put my face along with 11 other people with Jewish-sounding last names and said, these people, on the Internet, it went viral, to his armed followers said, these Jews are responsible for gun control. Go shut them down. Wow. So th this isn't a gun rights organization. This is a racist, anti-Semitic organization set out to create a cultural war. They were happy to have black kids killing black kids in the inner city. I've said for 25 years, 800,000 dead people ago since I built the billboard on the Mass Pike. Don't think that this war and this unrestricted access to guns is just going to stay in the inner city. At some point, it's going to the suburbs. And look who the mass shooters are now. They're largely angry white guys with AR-15s. And the last vote that Congress took after Trump became president was to lift the, the Obama-era ban on veterans who are under the care of somebody else because of a mental health crisis lift the ban on them being able to buy weapons and look, whether it's San Bernardino, Texas, um, Las Vegas, these are veterans. 
with PTSD coming back and acting out their fantasies. And after every single time this happens, we are told, and we've talked about this a lot, after every single time, the NRA and Trump say, it's mental illness. Look, folks, U.S. doesn't have a lock on mentally ill people. There are mentally ill people everywhere. We just happen to arm them with military-style weapons without detection. That's why we have an epidemic of gun violence. John Rosenthal, Stop Handgun Violence. Can we do one last thing on guns that's an up note? Because I never believed this would work. But let's end where you started. Even though we are bordered by a state that has some of the weakest gun laws in the country, New Hampshire, and wasn't it you who took Marjorie to the gun show in yes. New Hampshire? What happened to the, at the gun show? Tell quickly what, what the guy said to you when you... Well, I wasn't supposed to be able to buy a high-capacity magazine because I'm from Massachusetts, and I told the guy that. I said, well, I'll just make sure nobody pulls you over on the way home. Okay, so... They'll, they'll sell you whatever you want. It's that kind of story that always no convinced asked. me that no matter how far we went in, New, in Massachusetts, how far they went in Connecticut, it was not going to... There is evidence that really tough gun laws in states, while we'd all prefer, most of us would prefer to see them on the federal level, as long as we can't get them on the federal level, state laws matter. Why do they matter? I mean, how, they do matter, yes? They absolutely matter, and Jim. Why do they work so well when all you have to do is drive across the border and have the experience like you and Marjorie had? Because we simply make it harder for people who are prohibited to buy guns. And that's the good news. I mean, as we started, we require gun owners, dealers, manufacturers, and law enforcement to all hold, be accountable for selling, owning, safe storage, uh, we ban assault weapons, and we, we became the first state in the nation to require, like, the red dot on the end of a mm-hmm. real gun, like a, a uh, so manufacturing standards, and we reduce gun deaths by 60% without banning anything except for those, you know, assault weapons and large-capacity ammunition magazines. So there's the hope, is that if your goal is to reduce injuries and deaths from guns without banning most guns, you simply do what urban industrial Massachusetts has done. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we need to hold members accountable um, and do it on a state-by-state basis until we can change Congress and bring about sensible gun laws. I want to give a shout-out, too, to St. Susanna's Parish in Dedham that set up its nativity oh, scene. Fox News reported this, uh, Fox 25, I should say. Uh, and right behind the nativity, behind uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they placed a list of some of the deadliest mass shootings in our country's history. And the priest there, Stephen Josama, said the move was to get people talking and motivated to do whatever they can to combat uh, gun violence. So good for St. Susanna's Parish. And And I am thrilled that our invitation that we sent to the 300 members of Congress who voted to restore the gun rights for mentally ill vets um, also were forced to see it in The Hill, which is the Capitol Hill newspaper. Yeah, I read it on The Hill this morning, actually. So invitation landed and received. Great. John John Rosenthal, thank you. Thank you you very much, and thank you for all your good work on this. John Rosenthal is the co-founder of Stop Handgun Violence. He is indefatigable. Is that how you pronounce it? Indefatigable, Indefatigable, whatever it is. Not fatigable, but fatigable. Fatigable. He (laughs) works very hard. That's what he does. no tolerance (laughs) for injustice. He works very hard, and he's co-chairman as well, the board of directors of the police association. Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative. We didn't have a chance to Which get is to trying to replicate what yes. happened in Gloucester around the country. Next have, time you're here, we we'll get talk to that. about that. I'm great. sorry about that. But, John, thank you very much. Great. Coming up, Thanks, is John. the GOP tax plan the most consequential legislation in the nation's history? Harvard historian Nancy Kane joins us for that and more. She is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and I, Jim Browdy, live from the GBH studios of Boston Public Library. When it comes to the GOP tax plan, it's hard to decide what makes it so remarkable. Is it the fact that benefits for the rich betray candidate Trump's pseudo-populism? Is it the fact the last-minute stocking stuffers were added to win over Susan <laughs> Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Jeff Flake? Or is it the unprecedented haste with which this bill is pushed through? Joining us to put this legislation in an historical context is Nancy Kane. Nancy, of course, is an historian at the Harvard Business School. She holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration. Her latest book is Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Hey there, Nancy Kane. I see you. It's always great to be here. I saw you on a Sunday talk Fa show. Face the Nation. Week. Face the Nation. You were fabulous. Yes, you were fabulous. You were great. Thank you. So, Nancy Kane, um, back in 1913, uh, 16th Amendment, I believe, created a permanent income, income taxes. Tax, yeah. And since then, we've been fiddling and diddling. That's almost 100 years. Um, where does this latest fiddle and diddle fit into this? Uh, these oh, I think this is more than a fiddle or a diddle. I think this is a pretty momentous piece of fiscal legislation that has much broader effects than just the country's finances. Um, I, I put it right up there with IRDA, the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981, which is the which was the foundation of supply side economics. What you know, critics call trickle down economics. Mm -hmm. Give a lot of money to the wealthy. Give a lot of money to businesses, and that will those the extra money will trickle down in the form of jobs and higher incomes for folks less fortunate and less wealthy than than large corporations and the wealthiest 1%. That 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 economic logic has been empirically and theoretically decimated over the last 40 years, but ERDA and the rollback of a lot of ERDA of that tax which was happened in 1983 in something called the Tax Equity and Fiscal Reform Fiscal Responsibility Act Though that piece of legislation compares in terms of its breadth of, of impact to this piece of legislation. There was one last big tax bill that was more than fiddle and diddle since uh, Reagan's tax cuts, and that was George W. Bush's tax cut in 2001, as all you folks know very well because you've talked about it. Many of those tax cuts for very wealthy Americans and corporations were rolled back by subsequent by, by, by the Obama administration. So we're talking a big exclamation point piece of legislation in the sweep of American tax history. You know, speaking of, uh, of uh, context, uh, which I said in the beginning here, is, you know, one of the big debates is, is it okay to have the top tax, what is it, 39 and a half or whatever mm -hmm. it is? Can you give us a little bit of history? I know this will cause Marjorie to be all a Twitter here. Uh, 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 Give us the history of top income tax rates, like, for example, from World War II through even Ronald Reagan. What were well, we talking about? Well, we're talking about rates that have varied as high, higher than seven, well over 70 percent. The highest rate that I know of historically, and I, I wrote my master's thesis at the Kennedy School on tax policy, worked staffed at Sorry to big, hear that. <laughs> wasn't sexy, start, <laughs> staffed at the, the, the 1983 piece of legislation for a senator from Colorado when I was working on the Hill as many years ago, um, but, but the, the highest tax bracket for the very top, highest tax rate for the very top bracket was 94%. So for, for much of the 20th century, we were talking nominal rates, that's before deductions, exemptions, et cetera, nominal rates of 60 to 70%. 
right? So the, the, thinking about tax rates at, at the highest brackets at, at 40% or a little bit lower is relatively new in the context of the of the 20th century. John yeah. Kennedy, everything brought him from the 90s, 90s to the to 70s, 70s and, then yeah. and then Ronald Reagan. And then Lyndon Johnson brought them down to the mid-60s, and then Ronald Reagan brought them down another notch. Yeah, and, and what's, what's so interesting about that, and it's not just the only factor, but when you think of the years of great prosperity in the United States, and it wasn't just taxes, Absolutely. but it was the post-war... Uh, you know, from the from the '40s right through the '80s, when you could go to college, when yep. you could have dad working and supporting the whole one, family, and you one, could buy a house and afford a vacation, yep. and it's almost as if uh, we just seem to keep repeating the same mistake, and we've well, just done this, it again. This isn't this isn't about economic theory. And it's not about income distribution, which is one of the. Uh, one of the important aspects or, or purposes behind some of the initial legislation to create the income tax, which our listeners will remember was created in 1913 by the 16th Amendment. Um, it had been levied a couple of other times before, but it, it is made now. Yeah, in, by your guy, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln, to, to fund the, the Civil War. War right. Right? right. I mean, taxes always go up and become very, very important during times of war because you're spe- the government spending so w. much, spending so much money. Exactly. But in any event, um, there was once there, were, there has been at various moments in American history, the idea that the graduated income tax should be an important cre- leveler of incomes, not leveler, but an engine to generate more income and equality. Right. Right. What we've seen in the last, to your point, Mar- Marjorie, what we've seen in the last 20, 25 to 30 years is this, as we've talked about many times on this program, and you two have talked about many more times, is this massive increase in income and wealth inequality. And now we have the passage of a of, of, t- of this tax act, which will exacerbate that significantly in terms of how the benefit, where the benefits flow. Um, so, so tax policy is never primarily about theory, and it's not always it ultimately about practice, about good practice, it, or even pra- democratic practice, since most Americans are against this, both the House and the Senate bill, is about politics and power. And there is no question that this bill, on the Senate side and on the House side, still big differences to be reconciled before anything goes to Trump's desk in something called the Conference Committee, right? That is just beginning to happen. The Senate is sending their bill off to conference. It's still to be seen. It still remains to be seen what will happen. There is no question that this is legislation designed to benefit the donor classes, right? The people who give the most money to Republican campaigns. That is the primary purpose of this bill, and we should we are we are blindsided if we don't look at the very specific economics. I'm happy to talk about a few examples of this if you want. Yeah, let's hear some few. Okay, examples, so a yeah. couple of examples, and as you just said, Jim, in your intro, the bill became at least on the Senate side, to a certain extent on the House side, but more 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 obviously on the Senate side, a Christmas tree bill in which lots of ornaments got placed on it at the end very quickly. All of this happened in a very very rapid fashion. Got placed on it. This is not the first time this has happened in tax making, tax policy making, to appeal to certain groups. But in terms of the the tax piece of this. Over the next 10 years, people with incomes between 40 and 50,000 will pay $5.3 billion more in taxes. Those with incomes greater than a million dollars will pay $5.8 billion less in taxes. That's on the individual income side. So is there good evidence that the slashing the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20 percent, that's what the both bills do, very, really that's what they both do, will that create more jobs? There's almost no empirical evidence that that will happen. Indeed, in other moments when the corporate tax rate has been cut, 
that income is used by the extra income by corporations is used to buy back stock, increase dividends, or other or move the money overseas so they don't have to pay any to keep it overseas or move it overseas so they don't have to pay any taxes on it. So it's hard to see this as an economic economically beneficial uh, piece of legislation, except to the special interests like oil and gas refiners, refiners and drillers who will get the benefit of to buy Lisa Murkowski's. Murkowski. Excuse Murkowski's. me, Murkowski. Senator Murkowski's vote in Alaska. She's long wanted the Ant- the Arctic Wildlife Refuge mm-hmm. to be open to drilling. That's part of the Senate bill, et cetera. So there's these different pieces that benefit specific groups. But overall, it's hard to see this as something that will benefit the economic well-being of the country. You know, I'm wondering, it, it earlier pieces in our history, uh, I, I would imagine because we hadn't, uh, when Trickle Down came out, in the 80s with Ronald Reagan. It was a fairly new idea to most of us. Yep. We didn't, we didn't right. know about this. So maybe that's why people fell for it back then. But it is odd that we're falling for it yet a third time. Well, and, and, and it's the same lie that we keep well, are believing. we falling for it? Well, I mean, you're, the, you're right. That most I mean, people the don't. Poll, the, the polls, which are of course very young, because yep. this has only just happened, happened really quickly. It didn't happen in, a de- in, in what we consider a terribly democratic well, process. People aren't taking to the streets. No, now, it's not like when we had the oh, women's march. Well, there, there have been a few regional and local protests, but no, we're not seeing like the women's march. We're not seeing scientists lining up, you know, for cl- for for climate change action as we did say last yep. last late winter le- of this year. We haven't seen that yet. Um, so w- I think there's an interesting question about. Why, as a people, are we accepting something that most people don't benefit from and that we know will create more in- income inequality, not to mention a deficit that's a trillion yeah. dollars? I mean, over time, well, this is like selling our kids' future off in order that we get the few people in, the, in society today get some immediate and selling benefits. off our old age when Medicare gets Absolutely. cut. Absolutely. So, so there's, there's a couple of other things to say. So I don't know the answer. Why are we accepting this? I was thinking as I was preparing for this, you know, and Chelsea put together these fabulous stories for us to look at, and I found some others. I was thinking about something Rachel Carson wrote in 1962 at the very beginning of Silent Spring. Have, have we lost, have, have we fallen into a mesmerized state that allows us to accept what we know to be dangerous, dangerous or detrimental to ourselves and our communities because we have collectively lost the will to demand what is good? And I thought of that line. She's talking about pesticides mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the burgeoning, right, yeah. up grassroots interest in what's happening to our water and our air that was sp- sparked partly by DDT's widespread use at that time. But I thought, is that what's happening to us? Have we fallen into some mesmerized state where we're so busy doing all the things we're doing at, you know, all kinds of, all, in all kinds of pockets of America that we're not clear-eyed taking a look at this? I mean... The ability to raise revenues is why we founded our country. No taxation without representation was a, you know, a rallying cry for the colonists. There's not a huge amount of representation in this. <laughs> so why aren't we more incensed? And I don't know the answer, but I think if we want to change something like this, right, and then we have to, and we want to grab back our government, it's hard because, as you folks have talked so eloquently about with many guests, Democracy has changed a lot, right? Partly through Citizens yep. United, partly through gerrymandering, partly through all kinds People of large... staying there for 50, 50 years. 50 years, large structural changes, right? Partly 
this last election through outside, potentially outside influence in our election. So one person, one vote isn't how the Electoral College always kind of shakes out. So we have democratic challenges to the system, but we still have the right to demand what is good. Yeah. <laughs> and I, we're, not, we're not doing it in large Well, we numbers. demand it on social media, which is the lazy man and woman's is, way I to think protest. So. I think so. Can we, you, know, you know, one thing you would talk about, uh, 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 no, rep, uh, no taxation without representation. It, it reminded me of one of the things that Reagan got praised for. Some people like what he did, some people didn't. Is not only was it a lengthy process, much more importantly, it was a bipartisan process. Yes. I think as every listener knows, there was not one Democratic nope. vote for uh, this tax plan, either in the House or Senate. Some may say that's hyper-partisanship, shame on the Democrats, but the re- or some may say the Democrats it, resisted doing the horrible, but the bottom line is there was zero bipartisanship, absolutely. zero consultation. Is that with, Was Reagan the outlier, no. or have most of these major tax reform moments or tax cutting, whatever you want to call them, in, recent, in the last 100 mm. years that Marjorie mentioned, the product of some level of bipartisanship. Uh, the, the latter, absolutely the latter, Jim, as you, as I know you, you're intimating, or I'm sure you, you, you suspect, absolutely. And, I mean, one of the interesting things is, you th- I, I remember this from working on the Hill, I remember this from all the work I did on tax policy, is how there were bo- the, 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 the proponents of a specific, specific change in the tax system would be able to, you know, talk and use you know, neutral influences like the joint, you know, like the Congressional Budget Office and lots of folks who provide color, if you will, on the effects of tax supply would use those resources to lay out what the trade-offs were for the mm. good of the country. And there was some agreement on this. Okay, we'll take this increase in the deficit in order to do, in order to spend money, raise money this for this for, for this purpose or give these kind of tax cuts. We don't see, we now see two very different starkly different views of what constitutes governance on the part of America. Let me just read you two quotes from two of the supporters of repealing this estate tax, which you all, all, all our listeners will know was part of, the, part of both bills. Big reductions in the burden that people making over a million dollars and now, now up to $11 million, um, worth $11 million face in terms of passing their money on to their children. So this is from Charles Grassley, Iowa, one of Iowa senators. I think not having the estate tax recognizes that the people that are investing, Grassley said, as opposed to those who are just spending every darn penny they have, whether it's on booze or women or movies. And then here's Utah's Orrin Hatch, another senator, from, one of the senators from Utah. I have a rough time wanting to spend billions and billions and trillions of dollars to help people who won't help themselves, won't lift a finger, and expect the federal government to do everything. So, you know, we have a government, we have a, we have a group of legislators who think that government's responsibility is to help the very wealthy and a group of legislators who see it differently, and some in the middle, like Susan Collins, right, who, who had her bought, bought, votes so bought off. I am so disappointed in her. Me too, she many of us are. Jeff Flake, right, who also yep. had his vote bought off by potentially some some action on dreamers yep. and DACA that probably won't happen at least last report etc so and, and and so we we see again two very competing one very very harsh one uh, a policy of relative indifference to those that don't make a million dollars a year um, and, and everyone who makes less and a very different vision for America um, from you know the from from the Democrats and some Republicans and and generally most Americans. Three other things for our listeners to we think. Only have a minute. I'm sorry. 
That's okay. Quickly, three things. The, the, God is in the details in, this, in, in both these bills. So if you're interested and if you're, anything in this conversation has piqued your interest as a voter and a citizen, you need to find out about some of the things that are likely to happen. For example, tuition for graduate students yeah. is entirely likely to be taxed, tuition aid, right? Adding tens of thousands of dollars to graduate student tax bills, right? The, the mandate for, in, for insurance under Obamacare may indeed be repealed. Right, the Antarctic, a ban on churches being involved in political activity, which was put in place in 1954, was was relinquished in the House bill that may likely stay in place for the final bill. So there are all kinds separation of churches. So there are all kinds of details here that are worth a little bit of time and attention. Amen. Nancy Kane, thank, thank you, you very, very much. That was terrific as always. Nancy Kane joins us every week. She's a historian at the Harvard Business School where she holds a James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration. Her latest book, and it is terrific, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. We have a whole section there about Rachel Carson. Nancy, thank you. And thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, Congressman Richard Neal will be here with us. Our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem and Sue O'Connell. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tureski, Molly Boygon, Christina Bieni, and our engineer, John McClure Parker. We are a production of WGBH. Jim Brady, what's on TV? Well, I should first say, Richie Neal is not just another congressman from Massachusetts. He's the chief Democrat on the tax writing committee, even though he was kept out as well. So no one knows more about this on the Democratic side than him. Kevin Cullen has written columns in the Boston Globe saying uh, stepping aside temporarily by Stan Rosenberg is not enough. And then there is State Senator Linda Dorsina-Fori. They're both going to join me tonight to talk about the latest on Stan Rosenberg, the Conyers resignation, and why there are arbitrary differences between how some politicians survive or don't survive these kind of scandals. Emerson College President Lee Pelton on the impact of the tax plan on uh, universities, on education, the travel ban on higher ed. Christina Quinn is going to talk a little bit about what we didn't get to talk to John Rosenthal about, the program out of uh, Gloucester, which is going national for those who are addicted. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Donald Trump's feeding habits. That's all tonight at Greater Boston at 7 o'clock. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a lovely afternoon. Keep out of the rain.